Hello, everyone. This is Dark Journalist. Welcome to our 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination special, JFK 60, the UFO file and Blue's secret space program. Tonight, we'll have the latest on the JFK assassination with Dr. Joseph Farrell going deep. We'll have archive clips of the last Jim Mars interview that he did on JFK and NASA. And I'll be interviewed as part of the JFK 60 Blue Enigma special presentation on X technology, NASA and the Blue secret space program. We'll also include our classic documentaries. I go back to Corso, mm-hmm. who, when they asked him, what were you doing in your briefings? You know, you say you briefed President Kennedy and his brother on the UFO file. And he said, well, you know, they wanted every little detail that we had on what was going on with the materials and everything else. He said, but one of the things that they were vested in was constructing and using the X-15 mm-hmm. that Walter Dornberger had made. Mm-hmm. Um for chasing UFOs. Mm-hmm. In fact, Corso said it was designed to chase them. To chase them. Yeah, I, I, that whole, that whole X-15, the original dinosaur space shuttle project. Uh, Blue Gemini. Yeah, all of that stuff, I think, has a, a direct UFO connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that there is, again, a hidden Nazi aspect to that technology that, again, they don't want out. One of the key, one of the key factors there is that Walter Lippisch, the German ramjet, uh, scientist was one of those paperclip scientists at, at Dayton, Ohio, at the air technical intelligence command. And Dr. Lippisch is an unusual guy because he maintained adamantly after he arrived over here that the sound barrier was broken by a German, by a Nazi ramjet in about 1944. Forget about, forget about Chuck Yeager. Wow. So yeah, that whole, I'm not surprised that they would have thought of this as a UFO chase device. Mm-hmm. Because the other thing about the X-15 uh, aircraft was that it was an extremely high-altitude aircraft. In other mm. words, it was it was capable. Um, I think it's the a space max, plane. In fact. Well, yeah, li- quite literally, it would ascend. You know, they would release it from a from a a bomber, but it would actually ascend to about 115 to 120 thousand feet. Mm-hmm which was, you know, way beyond the ceiling of, of Captain Mantell or any prop driven, or even for that matter, jet aircraft at the time. So the X-15, yeah, it had an extraordinarily high ceiling. And the other thing I think that they were doing with the X-15 because of that extraordinarily high ceiling is they're also doing the basic aerodynamic testing for the U-2 and then eventually the SR-71 Blackbird. Because they fly at, at those extremely high altitudes. Incredible. Yes. Yeah. That's absolutely fascinating. And it reminds me because in your Covert Wars book, there's a section about the Soviets and the Americans both becoming aware of a second uh, orbital satellite beyond the things that they were sending out. So there's something oh, yeah. else out there. Oh, yeah. Um, and in fact, at a certain point, their own satellites are getting turned off and they're like, who's doing that? And if it was meteor stuff, who's repairing it? 
So they're already looking in that period at somebody else operating in the space. Well, it, it's not only, uh, I think it was one of the Telstar satellites. Um, not only were we having some of our satellites turned off, but in one case, it was turned off for about six months and then turned back on. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're done with it. We're, we're done. You can have it back now. Yeah. You know, it's like that Mars rover. Remember that? You know, yes. the rover suddenly died. Oh, well, it was a dust storm. And then all of a sudden, months later, it starts up again. You know, <laughs> so Marvin the Martian came by with some Windex and paper towels and cleaned it for us. You know, um, it, no, it's it's weird if we're being told the truth that they didn't turn it off themselves. Um, th this whole thing of another satellite in the sixties, the so-called black Knight satellite. Right. The thing about it that has fascinated me was it's in polar orbit. Right. At that time, neither the United States nor the Soviet union were capable Absolutely. of putting things into a polar orbit. You know, that, that took, uh, a few more years before they were able to do that. Um, plus, what I have heard, Daniel, is the dimensions of the so-called Black Knight satellite, if, again, any of this is true, is that this thing is big. Mm -hmm. It's It's, in other words, way beyond the capability that the Soviet Union or the United States had at that time to boost into space. It, it's an enormous satellite. It's physically big and it weighs a lot, apparently. So, you know, what that thing is doing in a polar orbit and who put it there, you know, <laughs> the, the all-important question. Yeah, it's a gigantic <laughs> probe. It's a space probe. It, it would have to be something like that. But What's in a polar orbit, you know, what? why a polar orbit? That's the other thing. And yeah. I'm, when I <laughs> Okay, uh, if it's polar... Yeah. The really interesting thing on the planet ain't at the North Pole. Let's get clear at Antarctica. Yeah, it's Antarctica. Yeah. Now, and what's what's what interesting? Needs to be washed down there. Anyway, go ahead. Right. <laughs> no, that's the real point. It's fascinating with Antarctica because um, when you get into that period of time, mm -hmm. there is the International Geophysical Year, yep. which we're we. We've did an episode on it, and we're preparing to release a lot of information about this, which oh, cool. I want to get your opinion on when we put it okay. out. Um, but IGY is fascinating because at the behest of Lloyd Berkner, who had just headed up the Robertson panel, and there's some other interesting things about Berkner. For example, he <laughs> went for two years with Admiral Byrd over to Antarctica between 1928 and 1930. Oh, I did up, not know that. Yeah, set up Little America radio station there. Um, oh, well, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? So Berkner shows up in this strange way, and then he's saying, well, let's do International Geophysical Year with the Russians, and we'll all go around to Antarctica and check out what's going on. And blow up A-bombs. <laughs> This, Joseph, when I saw your 1960 reference in your book to uh -huh. the satellite that is out there that both the Russians and the Americans are looking at and saying, what's that? Uh -huh. I started to think the beginning of that survey is the IGY, and that's the reason for it. Oh, that could very well be. It makes, uh, wow, yeah. <laughs> 
We're getting to strange territory there. It raises the question, are they trying to take the satellite out? Are they trying to interfere with communications? And the other question I have is with regard to, to that speculation, is exactly what kind of radio station did he set up down there in the 1930s? Mm. Is this one of these automated weather stations? Uh, what kind mm -hmm. of radio? Is this, is this a shortwave station or is there... Is this, you know, an FM or AM transmitter transmitting to somebody in the local neighborhood? Mm. Um, this, yeah. or is it just okay. a receiver? Yes. You know, yes. what's going on with this? Now, this is getting into very interesting territory. There is, there's uh -huh. two things in here that I think are fascinating. One, that one of the people in uh, America, in Maryland, there's one person, there's two people in the entire country who officially pick up his broadcast. One of them is a kid in a garage with his own radio set picking up signals from Antarctica. Well, man. it's got to be shortwave then. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the other thing I, to put on the record about Berkner, of course, is that he is who President Kennedy is going to meet at the trademark. Mm -hmm. And his famous last speech which nobody ever learns about or finds out about is with Berkner. And the only thing we know about it is that they arranged for this flag that was over the white house for, uh, Kennedy to give to Berkner at the ceremony. That was one. They were going to helicopter it in. And Kennedy was adamant that they use a flag that was flown over the white house. That's very interesting. And then in Berkner's notes, he says, we are going to have international staggering implications from our speech today. That's it. And, and that's the all Johnson we know. Well, the Johnson administration sits on the letter of the speech for five years, and then they release this thing, and it's like, uh, it doesn't sound like Kennedy at all. It's like, we need to build up our nuclear forces, you know, and supposedly that was it. They released it five years later? Come on. And that's supposed to be the text of his speech? It is. No. No way. So Berkner was, he was waiting at the trademark. In fact, I found out later that part of the motorcade went directly to the trademark. They show up there. They know nothing about the assassination. And Berkner's oh, there wow. waiting for the whole ceremony. So something was going on at the trademark. And Berkner was right in the heart of it. But he'd headed up the Robertson panel. So he's got the Holy UFO connection. Cow. And yeah. he's got the Antarctica yeah. connection. And Kennedy wanted the exact flag from the White House helicoptered in. Yes, that's on the record. What does and, that tell you? Well, yeah, if if they're going to if they're going to have a speech, and it's going to create a major international sensation, you've got this guy setting up a, a shortwave, apparently a shortwave transmitter in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's too much going on here. Yeah. And yeah. It's, 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 my guess is, yeah, it's definitely UFO related. And therefore, it may be something to do with that satellite, you know, in geos, polar orbit, mm -hmm. not geosynchronous, polar orbit, uh, because that, that will take it over Antarctica. And that's it's, fascinating. It's got, yeah. it's got something to do with Antarctica. And the international to, geophysical international year, geophysical year, taking the Antarctica's international, yeah, 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 something, something 
they were planning to disclose something, it sounds like to me, with respect to Antarctica or possible plans for Antarctica. Something going on down there. I mean, you and I talked uh, before the recording about the, the most recent Chinese thing. Yes. Uh, and, you know, the Chinese sending two icebreakers and a cargo ship and 460 people to construct their fifth uh, research station. 460 people. Incredible. Um, you know, that's quite a construction gang. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially for Antarctica. So, yeah, something very weird going on. I mean, you and I both know. Antarctica has this endless list of strangeness. Yes. Um, the people associated with it, the the goings on, the you know, uh, and and I'm convinced from those clues that I, I put out in in the Hess mess, the Hess and the Penguins, uh, that Antarctica for some reason was front and center in those conversations taking place between Hess and, and the British. After his flight to Great Britain, I mean, it's it's, it's very split. strange. It's all very very strange. Yeah, um, something something very weird going on down there. Well, the Nazis were on the spot with it. They were as on we the know. spot. Yeah, uh, they enlisted the help of Bird. Yep, they did to help get them situated about how they could do it. He decided not to go with them, but he went right. over there to right. tell them how to do it right. before we were at war, of course. Yep. Um, Bird is interesting because there's so many bird footprints around yep. the Kennedy assassination, and yep. it's sitting there as a gigantic question mark, including the fact that Admiral Bird's cousin, D.H. Bird, owned the Texas School Book Depository. Well, to me, it means in addition to a UFO connection, you've got an Antarctica connection. Yeah. I mean, and what that is and why it's there, you know, we can guess all we, you know, for that matter it raises the the whole question of why secretary john Kerry went to antarctica in the middle yeah. of a diplomatic junket in 2016 you right know, and we're told it was because he was interested to see the climate um <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't miss his botox session for that no uh, yeah john Kerry. <laughs> no no i'm sorry <laughs> it was it was it was part of a diplomatic mission yeah you know so that's the way i think it should be read he went there for some diplomatic purpose was it to meet secretly with another world leader mm -hmm. you know the only other world leader that's been down there was the patriarch of moscow for crying out loud. right <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's uh, that u.s russian yeah. East again. And, yeah, it's um, just it, none of this makes any sense. And now in Antarctica, to me, it's very telling that of all the presences on Antarctica, including the Nazi one, the most weird of them all is Raytheon. What oh, yeah. in the name of sense are they doing there? Yes. And why is why is everybody so interested all of a sudden in detecting neutrinos down there? Right. And on and on it goes. Yeah, that is fascinating. And of course, Vannevar Bush, the founder of Raytheon. So he's Yep. Yeah. <laughs> they've got the roots there, the incredible roots. Um, one of the things you wrote about 
in relation to Richard Bissell. And of course, oh. when we get around the Kennedy assassination, we've got the 60th anniversary right yeah. here in, a, in yeah. just a couple of weeks. Um, <coughs> when you get around the Kennedy assassination, you don't know so much about Bissell in the UFO file. It's dramatic. But one of the things that you mentioned is that they actually did a UFO simulation called Hummingbird. I found that interesting. And when I think about Bissell and his un unusual stature there in the intelligence world, um, it seems to me that that shepherding of the UFO file in the mm -hmm. Kennedy administration and who's keeping it out of Kennedy's hands directly is that Dulles Bissell connection. Oh, absolutely. If there's one character in the CIA at that time that would have access to the UFO file and have the the juice to keep it away from Kennedy, it would be Bissell, mm -hmm. much more than Alan Dulles. Mm -hmm. um, Bissell, Bissell basically is the one that has his finger into those technological pies. Mm -hmm. So my guess would be Bissell. So, yeah. Um, I would I would probably go so far as to say if there's anyone in that whole Kennedy era CIA uh, staff that would be aware not only of UFO file but any strange goings on at Antarctica again Richard Bissell absolutely mm -hmm. absolutely it's very interesting um, when we look at characters like Bissell who's deeply involved on the UFO side and on the intelligence side. When we get to the records that are kept of President Kennedy and the assassination now 60 years later and the CIA and the Biden administration announced, we're just not going to release any more records. Um, and we have the curious references from Napolitano, as we've discussed on this program, talking to President Trump before he leaves office and saying, release the records. And Trump saying, you know, you wouldn't believe what's in there. Basically, if you were me, you couldn't do it either. So there's something in the records that relates directly to the heart of what we're talking about, which yes. is the secrecy around the UFO file, this Antarctica project, and the presence of the the deep state in the assassination. Well, I suspect that it also, you know, that Buzz Aldrin, if those remarks that were attributed to him, yeah, after his his own little vac <clears throat> vacation to Antarctica are true. You know, uh, whatever he said was something to the effect, well, this is just pure evil. Right. Um, if if all of this is true, then there is a cover-up of something going on down there, and, and for that matter, of someone. Yes. Um, the only thing that can come that comes to my mind is a very strange picture in Dante's Inferno, where if you read if you read the whole poem, at the end he gets all the way down to the very pit of hell, and Satan is there in the center of that pit, but he's encased in ice. Oh. Yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> it's very oh, wow. weird. And even weirder, you know, everybody thinks that Dante is recreating 
the cosmology of Thomas Aquinas in, in the Divine Comedy. But I guarantee you that it's not part of Thomas Aquinas's cosmology that Dante and Virgil crawl their way up out of hell by climbing up Satan's back. Wow. And ex, you know, that whole imagery. <laughs> In addition yeah. to in addition to to Lucifer being encased in ice, <laughs> well, Dante's Inferno it is a mystery text. Let's oh, it is it. totally yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, what's his name? Booth is is the British guy that wrote a book about uh, Dante's involvement in a secret society in Florence. Okay. Unfortunately, he has not released the book in book form. It's only an ebook. And you know me, I just, if you're going to, if you're going to be able to write something and footnote it, please give it to me in a format that will remain <laughs> consistent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the final thing on the Kennedy assassination piece, which is, and it's the part that's not brought forward, and uh, you you certainly did in your LBJ book, but it is the paperclip NASA aspect in relation. The other person, I guess, is the deceased Ken Thomas, who passed away yeah. recently, but he, he spent some time on it, and he got the Torbit document into a form yeah. out to everyone. And uh, so that's remarkable that he was able to do that. But Joseph, just to sum up, the the paperclip battle versus Kennedy over nasa and the secret space program well i think well the other person that mentions the paper connect paperclip connection to kennedy and really the first one to do so and to do it in a way that uh, just could not be denied was may brussel oh yes uh beyond you know even even for the time that she she did it uh her research at the time seemed just absolutely incredible but basically anybody who's who's peered into that whole nazi connection to to the kennedy assassination has verified it one way or another in in some in some form or fashion yeah uh, and she was the first you know kudos to her for having having the guts to put all that out there when she did because oh, she was you know, so ahead of the curve oh totally yeah. totally um paris flamand another one that that hinted at it because he had been friends with her uh but the the kennedy nazi paperclip connection uh i think comes home in a number of ways with the with the choice of weapons that were mentioned after the assassination, the Mauser being a special kind of Mauser that the company made specifically for Argentina. Right. Uh, and then the change to a 6.5 Manlik or Carcano. In other words, weapons of two axis powers, one of which sold them to another sort of quasi Axis mm -hmm. power in Argentina. Yes. There's that the the whole Torbit document thing, as you mentioned, and and the connection to the Garrison investigation. Permandex, the company, and its or Central Mondial Comercial, as it was known in its uh, Jim Garrison Italian iteration, 
the connection in turn of that corporation to some very murky mafia connections like the Bronfmans of all people. Wow, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, just over and over again. Yeah. The uh, Ferenc Nagy, the, the fascist Hungarian prime minister, who some people say is the umbrella man at D. Right, because he's in Dallas during he's the assassination. He's in Dallas during the assassination. Major fascist figure. Major. Holy, oh, yeah, yeah. Hugely. Holy moly, you better believe it. Um, he was, uh, if I remember correctly, he had uh, some sort of cabinet position in Admiral Horty's government. So, yeah, major, major fascist guy. That would do it. Yeah. If that would do it. You've got the Hunts and the Murkisons with their connection to West German intelligence, you know, that, that Professor Scott has brought out uh, in a couple of his books. So, yeah, the Nazi fingerprints are all over it. Uh, and then if you really want to get into Nazi esoterica with regard to the Kennedy assassination, get a hold of a book by Mikhail Lebedev, a very rare book. And it's a fictional book, but it was published in Great Britain in the 1960s, late 1960s, where the author is basically letting out how he was recruited by Martin Borman <laughs> to, yeah. to, to, kill, <laughs> to kill Kennedy. It's not a very well-known book, but, and, and it's, that's a treason for my daily bread, treason for my daily you bread. You put that one on the map. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's not known at all because it was, it was brought out by a British publisher with one of those, you know, introductions that says, this is the story that was told. And this is, mm -hmm. you know, and we're just putting it out there. Um, it's it's a bizarre story. I suspect that for whatever reason that that if they're sitting on something with respect to the Kennedy assassination, that and we can't let it out because you know, like Trump said, we just can't. Mm -hmm. It's got something to do with Antarctica, and it probably also has something to do with Nazis. Yeah, uh, there's just no other way I can think of it. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, That's a wow. Yeah. It's interesting because the presence of Walter Dornberger in the Oswald oh. story. Yeah. As you know, Michael Payne's mentor at yeah. helicopter yeah. and Oswald coming back from Russia, staying with the Paynes. Yes. He and his wife. And then all of the evidence implicating him coming out of the Payne household, who's directly connected to Dornberger, that is, uh, you know, and we've gone through Dornberger's history before. He was the boss of Von Braun. Oh, yes. And he's down there at Bell Helicopter, Bell Aerospace, you know, uh, concocting this uh, identity for himself, this new identity. <laughs> so for me, um, when you look at that, you can see the fingerprints of Paperclip probably the most up close right oh, yeah. there. Well, let's not forget something else about about Oswald, and and about the Nazis, the NASA Nazis at that at that specific time. Oswald, prior to going over to the Soviet Union, and I point this out in in the LBJ Kennedy book, Oswald was heard by some of his Marine buddies not only speaking Russian but another language. German. Ah, yeah. And in Oswald's diary that 
became part of the evidence against him. In his diary, he had the phone number of George Lincoln Rockwell. American Nazi he, Party. The American Nazi Party head. Yeah. You know, I grew up, he, he was alive when I was a boy. I remember this creep. Uh, yeah. You he know. died suspiciously, too. If you oh, know. have you made it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, he did. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> yeah, so you've got that. And then That's other, fascinating. Oswald's landlady had him talking in both Russian and German. And German. Yeah. Yeah. German? <laughs> you know, why? <laughs> well, I haven't figured out that part of the story. Well, my right? suspicion has always been that the people that had the boots on the ground inside the Soviet Union at that time that could have been capable of running him and then getting him out of the Soviet Union with the daughter of a GRU colonel in tow as his wife was the Galen network. Yeah. So, you know, it's not the CIA running this guy hands-on. It's it's Galen and his people. That's so, why you get the Galen, Harry Truman editorial. Well, Galen, yeah, yeah, Galen has what? The direct connection to Hunt and Murkison because wow. Galen yes. is their their private intelligence network. All right. He's the one telling them, get the heck out of Texas. Go down to your dacha in Mexico until the whole thing cools off. The other thing that's going on at the time of the assassination, and this, again, I think... Uh, the Torbett document picks up on this aspect of, of the infighting going on between Kennedy and his NASA director, James Webb, and the paperclip Nazis, is that Artur Rudolph, uh, the guy that designs the Saturn V, folks, <laughs> in other words, <laughs> our, our, our Nazi German moon rocket, <laughs> this guy, <laughs> this guy, is and and the other German scientists are really having a problem in NASA, and the problem is they they are impatient. They hate the American contracting bidding nonsense with the defense contractors. They just want to go ahead and build all of this stuff and get going. Right. So there was a movement amongst these paperclip Nazis to build all of those rockets by themselves in-house. Not through Boeing, not through Raytheon, not any, not through Lockheed Martin. Just let us do it. We can do it, and we can get it done quickly. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Paperclip NASA right there. Yeah, Paperclip NASA. Artur Rudolph was the one that, that was leading that charge, the guy that eventually did build the Saturn V. He just wanted to do it all in-house. Wow. <laughs> You know. So, yeah, we're, we're going to, you know, and I think rightly the government said no because they realized that, you know, that would have been just turning the whole kit and caboodle over to these Nazis. <laughs> right. Am I right that they did fire some rockets into Mexico? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they <laughs> Juarez, <laughs> you know. And the Mexican government rightly protested. Oh, know, why are you bombing us? With your <laughs> and the other thing that's interesting is some of those V2s uh, had cameras on them. Oh. So that you, they were taking pictures. And 
in many of those instances, the cameras, when they went out to look for, you know, the nose cone with the pictures were gone. Well, that's unbelievable. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, these Nazis are taking pictures of all of our defense installations yeah. and turning them over to whoever their contact is in Mexico. Right. Bring them and bring those down to Argentina. It's and like, bringing hey. them down to Argentina, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who knows? That it's is fascinating. A, it, yeah, the whole thing is, you know, and and they really don't even have to to turn, you know, take all those pictures down to Argentina because Walter Schellenberg, of all people, <laughs> turns over to Juan Perón in 1944, turns over to Juan Perón the entire German shortwave transmitting network from Argentina to Mexico. Wow. He turns all the, it was called the Bolivar network. He turns all of that over to Juan Perón. <laughs> Incredible. So Perón has got all of these secret shortwave transmitting stations. Yeah. You know, this, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, the untold aspect of the Kennedy assassination, Argentina, paperclip and NASA with the yeah, UFO it's huge. file. It's yeah. huge. It's huge. Who, you know, who would believe a, a an, an Antarctica connection to this. It's just nuts. I mean, and <laughs> throw on top of that, Nazis? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know uh, it's interesting because D.H. Byrd, to clear his head after the assassination, he goes to Antarctica. He says, I, I've got to go down there. I've got to go it. down there. Got to do some fishing. Shoot, I'll tell you another know, weird thing about D.H. some penguins. <laughs> Our good friend, he goes down there in 65. Of course, he's the chairman of LTV, you know, yep. as we know. Um, interesting thing about him when I was reading his biography, autobiography, and uh, I'm an endangered species, you know, that's what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> but what's he, he's not. <laughs> Oh, oh, the things I want to say, Daniel. <laughs> Go ahead. He does not mention once in there either the Kennedy assassination or that he owned the building. Of course not. Amazing. Of course not. It, in, it, a, uh, in a television interview in 1973 where he is selling the building, he actually reenacts Oswald's supposed pose at the window with a rifle. <laughs> And then he has taken the actual window from where the assassination supposedly took place, and he hangs it in his living room. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. D.H. Bird. Uh, and this guy was a hunter. You know, he liked his hunting trophies. He's got them all over the place. So the Oswald Windows is one of those trophies, as it were. My word. So the window that's there now is not even the original window. It's not. <laughs> He grabbed it. Well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> yes. Because you've got the the Malcolm Wallace fingerprint. Oh, yes. Excellent point. So D.H. Bird is doing cover-up for Lyndon yes. Johnson. <laughs> That's Let's take rich. that whole window out. Come on. Yeah, take the whole window. <laughs> And then his son uh, comes out later and, and 
they're like, you know, the the building is trying to get it back. They're, you know, the, the <laughs> Texas School Book Depository. And he's like, no, that was one of my dad's favorite things. You know, I'm not giving it up. No, they want to get that back so they can paint over the fingerprint. <laughs> if the fingerprint's still there after right. all this time, probably not. <laughs> well, good old Mac. Yeah, know. good old Mac. On my word. I mean, it doesn't stop. Incredible. And, and yeah, and and there's still. I mean, the the most laughable thing about all of this, Daniel, is they're still promoting this nonsense that Lee Harvey Oswald, number one, was anywhere near that window. Yeah. <laughs> and number two, he acted alone. <laughs> oh, my God. Honestly. The magic bullet. Uh, you know, yeah. it's interesting. ABC News has a 60th anniversary JFK piece coming up. Oh, dear. It's like, you know, <laughs> what the world couldn't take in at the time is just Oswald, and he just wanted to do it because he hated that Kennedy, you know? Amazing. They're 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 literally coming out and repeating all that nonsense again. Yes, it's pure Warren Commission for 2023 for the 60th anniversary. And then we had the weird dance of the Secret Service guys saying, "Hey, I found this bullet," you know. <laughs> well, that's not nice. a Tell bullet me. from a 7.62 Mauser. <laughs> right. Exactly. Wrong, wrong bullet. Wrong bullet. <laughs> Sixty years later, and no answers, Honestly. Joseph. Honestly. No official answers. Well, we've got lots of official answers. I mean, mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is the government is now on record endorsing two entirely different narratives. True. Warren Commission narrative and the House Assassinations Committee narrative. And any way you slice the ladder, it's a conspiracy. Right. Not a very wide one, but <laughs> nevertheless, right. it's there. Yes. Um, you know, so typical typical federal government put out two mutually exclusive and contradictory narrative to explain something you really don't want to explain at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> but don't worry, Hollywood has the solution. You know Other than that, doing? Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? <laughs> Hollywood has the solution, Joseph. They're putting out the movie Sam Giancana, He Assassinated Kennedy. And you know it's got Robert Sam Giancana? Giancana. And the movie is called Mafia Hit. Well, could you get any more obvious than that? I mean, this is... Oh, come on, folks. <laughs> Give me a break. So that's their fallback position. They're like, oh, let's, you know... Oh, oh uh, Yeah, I see that. ABC runs the standard narrative and Hollywood gets to take the Mafia fallback. <laughs>
E. Howard Hunt, the CIA's super spy, best known as the coordinator of the Watergate burglars, revealed to his close friend and attorney for the Watergate 7, Douglas Caddy, the nature of the desperate struggle between JFK and the CIA over the UFO file. Caddy revealed to me what Hunt told him in this interview. And then we walked out, and on the street there, I thought, well, this is, this is the last time I'll see Howard. I'm going to make one more stab, okay, and, and seeing if I can get something here, you know. And I said, well, Howard, uh, well, why was uh, John Kennedy assassinated? He said, uh, what, why was John Kennedy assassinated? He said, John Kennedy was assassinated because he was about to give our most vital secret to the Soviets. About to give our most vital secret to the Soviets. And I was stunned by that. I mean, John Kennedy, our president, Soviets, and I never even thought about, heard about such a thing. And, uh, and I said, well, what, what was that? And uh, at that point, he leaned forward and looked right in my eyes, directed in my eyes, and he said, the alien presence. And he reached out and shook my hand and then turned and walked away. And that was the last time I saw Howard Hunt. It didn't mean that much to me. I knew it was important, but it did not mean that much. There's no way I could, in the alien presence, I was not really familiar with that either, you know. Uh, but I remembered it. I knew it was important. This breakthrough revelation from a top CIA officer to his friend in private gives us the real mandate of Exprotect. Any official, even the president, who wants to reveal the true nature of the X technology in the UFO file must be eliminated. They've used this protocol for decades, but their attempts to conceal their actions have at times taken an unexpected turn. started with a cover-up in the government uh, on November 22, 1963. And you can imagine those people thought at the time something very strange just happened in the public. And the answers that they got were very superficial. Um, as time wore on, the story about Oswald and the old gun up in the sixth floor of the school book depository mm -hmm. Uh, became kind of a punchline and a joke, the magic bullet and things of this nature. And here we find ourselves at this point in culture, looking across 60 years later and those people who thought, well, at some point this will get resolved. You know, we've had parents and grandparents and uh, in their lifetimes they didn't see it. And now here we are 60 years later and their kids and grandkids haven't seen it. So whatever the government has locked up in relation to the Kennedy assassination, must be a secret that goes to the very heart of the power center itself. And that's why we find ourselves here 60 years later without Still waiting. any answers. Yeah, isn't that something? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and for me, you know, it's important too when you think about uh, the generations coming up because a lot of them, you know, I mean, the Kennedy story was already a long, long time ago by the time I was growing up. So think about people now, you know, and I had to be retro enough to lock into it as a story. So at what point is it just going to be something where if there aren't any answers, you know, they're hoping people just forget about yeah. what took place. Drop off. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
what was the aspect of President Kennedy's space program that was called Blue and related directly to this hidden exotic technology? This is exactly what we're here for tonight, yeah. which is Blue. And Blue is the secret space program. It's something we brought forward on the X-Series. And uh, for me, when I think about Blue, the discovery of it, all along the way when I was looking into the UFO file, the UAP, all this thing, uh, the information that was coming out, you'd always go back to the names and they always had Blue in them, Project Blue Book, Project Blue Beam. Um, and I thought, you know, we do a lot with steganography on the show. It's actually the ex-steganography series. And steganography is like cryptography. They use names for a reason, uh, especially to move things through government agencies without anyone catching on. And so Blue, in particular, um, a program called Blue Gemini happened during the Kennedy administration. And this was Kennedy's attempt to open up and sort of take control back under the executive wing for the space program. Mm -hmm. And it had fallen into the hands of Project Paperclip scientists over at NASA. So there was a battle and a struggle there. And a lot of those documents have only come out really in the last 10 years. So we haven't had the access that we have now. Now we can really say that there was a secret space program. The code name of the program was Blue and that the Kennedy, uh, you know, the kind of battle inside of those political structures with President Kennedy was directly related to this exotic technology aspect, which was in the hands of a very elite group of scientists who were operating outside of any kind of idea of uh, law or constitutionality and who were very um, rabid anti-Russian. Mm. And so they didn't want anything to do with sharing the technology for the world uh, the way that President Kennedy did. Barely anyone. Yes. Yeah. And when you think about it. <laughs> well, that's the kind of thing where we see that now, too. You know, there's a lot of exclusive circles that happen. So when President Kennedy comes in, uh, his first thing that he says is, I can't believe the amount of power the CIA has over the presidency. That's ridiculous. And uh, he's quoted by Arthur Schlesinger as saying, I'm going to take the CIA and smash it into a thousand pieces. So you can see instantly that that covert world is looking at this guy who's come in, who's a millionaire, yeah. you know, and they think, oh, here's this lightweight playboy. And, you know, he thinks that he's going to change all the things that we've been laying out in terms of the rule of the world since World War II. And uh, so it's that structure that turns on him. And it's about three years of President Kennedy's uh, presidency. That's all he has. Mm -hmm. And most of that is fighting with the CIA yeah. and the different things that they're doing. So when he leaves, we're in the Vietnam War. Uh, you know, we have the Cuban Missile Crisis and they want him to go in and bomb Cuba. So Kennedy is, he's already developed quite an enemies list uh, on the CIA side. So therefore, when you get into the situation where the public's looking for disclosure, so many years later, the CIA is the obvious place to go, but they're the ones who've kept the records back. At the same time. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yes. <laughs> so it leaves us in a very, uh, a tricky situation. Uh, this 
idea of the breakaway civilization is because they have advanced technology, then you move into other areas. They have advanced science. They have, um, because the way that science works generally is one guy gets, you know, his great breakthrough and then somebody else picks up on it. But if you're doing all that in a narrow corridor where only a small group operates with it, mm -hmm. then you're going to miss all kinds of things. So you have a small group operating with advanced technology. That sounds like a bad, unhealthy thing in a democracy, yeah. right? Yeah. And this is kind of the problem that we run into with it. But if it is a breakaway group, what's happened is they've developed the technology over these eight decades, say, since the 40s. And it's funny, we were talking about the year 1947. Yeah. You've got the development of the CIA. You also have uh, Roswell. You have the development of uh, the whole flying saucer, you know, meme. Uh, Kenneth Arnold sees flying saucers, and suddenly all this stuff is established in 47. It's an interesting year. But um, we come back around to this idea of the breakaway. Now they're at a point where they need to break back in to, you know, we, they've developed this advanced technology. What are you going to do with it? You can't yeah. just sit on it forever, right? So you're going to come back to the public with it, but you have to come back with a story. So a lot of people look for uh, disclosure and UFO disclosure. They call it UAP disclosure now. They, you know, they, they have a new name for this. But UFO really is the best description of the whole thing. Um, for me, the story that they're putting out about it is how they get back into it. So it's not, you know, so they roll these guys out and they're Intel related again. So they're giving us kind of Intel whistleblower knowledge. They're not mm -hmm. genuine inside whistleblowers. So uh, that's kind of a uh, false disclosure sideshow. That's the, the kind of uh, the upshot of the whole thing. In my opinion, what we're looking at is a group that has such advanced technology, needs to roll it out, needs to profit from it, but don't, doesn't really know how to explain how they kept it secret for 80 years while the public funded it and they kept it completely off the books. Mm. So that's not, you know, that kind of transparency isn't something that they can allow. So we're in this situation 60 years later, which is the same thing that Kennedy faced in 1963. So he goes behind the back of the State Department and the CIA, and um, there are memos now that came out about President Kennedy saying, I want to share our space information with you, the Russians. I'm going to share our UFO file with you and we are going to go to the moon together. There's going to be no space race, no weapons in space, none mm. of that. And uh, Sergei Khrushchev, who's Khrushchev's son, he goes on the record saying, he and my dad, you know, were planning this joint moon mission. Wow. Now, at the Kennedy Library, they have the documents that say uh, cooperation with the Russians in outer space. That's 10 days before the assassination wow. that he's giving these directions. So you can see we're in the same tug of war, and it relates again to uh, the system that's operating plus space. So it's like this very uneven uh, combination with not a lot of uh, questions answered. Yeah. And this is where we are. Yeah. As we sit here tonight yeah. on the 60th anniversary. That's so wild. Um, is the government missing trillions of dollars relating the space program? And what do you think happened to the money? That's really a good question. Where's because the money? <laughs> <laughs> on the record, it's $23 trillion missing, which is quite remarkable. Uh, so therefore, that's going out the back door into the development of some kind of system. And uh, for me, it relates directly to this heavy-duty development in space that we're seeing and the privatization of space. 
because it doesn't make sense. You know, there's only so many Ferraris you can buy. Yeah. And like fancy houses you can buy, 22 trillion. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty severe. So um, where is the money going? I think uh, my best guess after looking at it is that this is all directly space related. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Daniel. <laughs> NASA had enlisted through Project Paperclip Nazi rocket scientists like Werner von Braun, who developed the V-2 rockets in Germany during World War II to help create the United States space program. How did this relate to the secrecy around the technology? Yeah, this is the crux of what we're talking about with secrecy, yeah. because um, the program itself, Paperclip, was not widely known until the 70s, many years after it happened. So after World War II, you know, the Allies go in, and the United States in particular want the cream of the crop of the Nazi scientists. And von Braun is the top of the rocket program. Uh, and he, along with someone else named Walter Dornberger, who shows up in relation to JFK later, those are the two that are kind of the cream of the crop of the space program. And in fact, when they get them back uh, as paperclip scientists, they're reformed Nazis, basically. Mm. And they develop NASA. They develop our whole space program. And so Werner von Braun, he's the father of NASA, but he's also an SS Nazi. You know, um, it's, it's a very interesting set of circumstances yeah. when we get into that. And uh, I think they did a lot to say, well, you know, he, he was under you know, Hitler and all that, so he couldn't really, um, you know, express his true desires. And he didn't want to drop V-2 rockets on English citizens, but that's just what Hitler made him do. Yeah. <laughs> but we used those guys to build our space program, but then we also developed them into all kinds of different aspects of the government. And this is where it becomes problematic, because Paperclip, as a philosophy, the kind of martial philosophy they're bringing with them, from this Nazi period. Um, you can imagine, well, they worked under Hitler for 12 years, by the time we get them, are they really gonna be, you know, pure? Uh, and yeah. suddenly just pro-America? So a lot of weird things happen um, when we get the paperclip Nazis into the American system of government. But their key function is the space program. And so what you see happening there is they start to develop aspects of this breakaway inside the space program because they've reunited their old command structure inside of it. And um, technically, you know, they're under the umbrella of the American government, but how much do they want to basically get back to just running the world the way yeah. that the Nazis were? So there's a lot of that philosophy, there's a lot of crossover there. How much were they really after American interests? And uh, with von Braun in particular, this is somebody who I would say, when it comes to Kennedy, uh, Kennedy's policies about sharing the secret technology with the Russians, about going to the moon together, a joint space mission, that's anathema to somebody like him. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Nazis have just killed 25 million Russians. So, you know, they don't want anything to do with a joint program with those guys. And so Kennedy becomes more and more of a target yeah. with his vision of doing this. Kennedy also is looking for ultimately UFO disclosure that's what figures into the uh, equation here. So paperclip becomes then kind of a dark shadow over the American government. So fascinating. It's, yeah, I know that's the disturbing aspect of the whole uh, assassination part because you have him dealing with, you know, 
died in the wool Nazis in NASA, and uh, they have a lot of problems with it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The thought that we are governed by covert technology group that sees themselves as directly separate, which has gathered vast wealth to finance their operations on a clandestine basis that may be managing crafts as part of a secret space program and which is outside of any public oversight is not a pleasant one. How do we get to the real truth? It's a really good point. Um, this is really the nature of the problem that we find ourselves I'm in. I'm so curious what you have to say. <laughs> well, we're in, a, we're in a tight spot with this, mm -hmm. I think, because um, they have collected vast amounts of wealth around the secrecy. So the idea of getting any kind of transparency from the government under traditional circumstances or from the media, um, you know, they don't have the incentive to do it because mm -hmm. they're protecting a structure which makes them tremendous amounts of money, like the $22 trillion that's disappeared off the books. So it's not a comforting thought because how are you going to retake control from that covert government back to the overt government? And we see this struggle through history. Uh, Professor Scott, um, Peter Dale Scott, who is, he coined the term the deep state. Mm. And uh, he's one of my favorite authors. And he's been on the show many times, but he talks about deep events. So when we get into things like um, you know, the world crisis that we're in now, um, or uh, 2000, you know, September 11th, mm. or Watergate, or Iran-Contra, all these things, the Kennedy assassination. He calls them structural deep events. Mm. And what they do is that group that's operating on that covert side walks into the public and they commit some crime or they change some policy through their action and then they step back into the shadows of that covert program and the overt public is left dealing with the policy change that they've created. So with the Kennedy assassination, they got the Vietnam War, for example. Um, and through Iran-Contra, you know, there's all kinds of money that went into programs that were secret. That's the kind of heightened development of the black budget. So when you get into it at that level, what you're looking at is a structure that's operating completely outside of any constitutional bounds or outside of any uh, rule of law that yeah. we've established in America, and yet using American assets to do it. So the, the struggle is between a the public, regular, overt government that we live in every day, um, you know, American justice, uh, all the, the rules that we live under as a country, and then this other system, which has vast amounts of wealth and operates completely outside of the system. Pretty rogue. It is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're right, I mean, 2023, yeah. you know, it's prime time yeah. for this. But a lot of people are seeing it, too, you know, and you're probably finding it more in day-to-day, -day, the people are more aware yeah. on a certain level, you know, and um, they, they're probably more freaked out in a way, too, you know. That's, I mean, that's kind of how I see it in the public. They're, there's a disturbing thing of like, oh, you know, they haven't played straight with us. Mm -hmm. And I think the Kennedy assassination, it's interesting because when you look at it over the arc of time, it's almost like the alpha and the omega of the secrecy because we're still living with it and you're supposed to have, you know, you can look back on this and say, well, you know, they were fighting the Cold War and here are the CIA people who were involved in the assassination. But instead, you're still getting the uh, official narrative of Oswald and, and an old gun and, you know, and the magic bullet and all that nonsense. Mm -hmm. 
So um, I think that we have to take a look at ourselves in society and say, right now, secrecy rules. Yeah. And uh, how do you get to the other side of it? How do you get to disclosure and, you know, genuine disclosure? And it gets into things like the UFO file, the exotic technology. So much of the economy depends on those advances. So yeah. in a sense, I guess the people who are uh, operating that are, are way ahead of us, you know. And until, you know, we start to develop policies that rein them in, yeah. we're in for more of the same. Compliance. Yes, yeah. it is. on that because um, he has a lot of UFO connections long before he goes into the White House. So uh, James Forstall is the first National Defense Secretary. He is his close friend. He takes him to Berlin after the war when he's 28-year-old journalist. And what's fascinating for me is they're both Catholic and they're best friends. And he, uh, Forstall runs MJ-12, which is, you know, overseeing UFO secrecy for the government. He ends up getting thrown out of a window at Bethesda Hospital. Oh my gosh. This is defense secretary. And Kennedy is his best friend. When Kennedy gets into the White House, he does a very interesting thing. He goes and visits the grave of Forrestal, and he has a photographer come with him to take pictures of him at the grave of his friend Forrestal. And we can take a look at that picture uh, right now. Yeah. Von Braun and JFK, that is 10 days before JFK's assassination. And he's there with uh, the head of our rocket program, Von Braun, who is the leader of the paperclip group. Yeah. Very strange indeed, but quite a, a picture for the ages. Yeah. And not one that they traditionally show when it comes to the Kennedy specials yes. and things. <laughs> they don't want to deal with paperclip. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah, the, the, the NASA connection with Oswald is really fascinating. The fact that he said, uh, told people there at Riley, he was going to go work for NASA. Well, this ties into what Jim Garrison was telling me one time about that he went, uh, several people there at Riley who had worked with Oswald and he was trying to get them to come and testify at his trial against Clay Shaw as being part of a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. And there was like three or four of them. And all of a sudden they all got offered better jobs at the NASA facility outside New Orleans. And, and they said, well, national security reasons, they wouldn't allow them to come and testify. Oh, unbelievable. Well, thanks a lot. So again, there's, 
huge, mysterious military industrial intelligence connection between Oswald, NASA, and uh, the Jim Garrison investigation. Before we get uh, totally off of Kennedy, from uh, Bill Holden, uh, who was the uh, loadmaster for Air Force One. Yes. Um, and uh, I believe it was in the summer of uh, 63, I suppose, I think when Kennedy went to Europe and made his famous Ich bin ein Berliner speech. And uh, it seems that there had been some UFO uh, uh, incidents in Europe and they were making some headlines around there. And so this Bill Holden told me uh, that uh, Kennedy was actually pretty uh, approachable. You know, he, he was a good guy right. and said while they were on Air Force One, he approached uh, Kennedy and uh, he said, uh, what do you think about UFOs, Mr. President? And he said, Kennedy became quite serious, thought for a moment and then said, I'd like to tell the public about the alien situation but my hands are tied. Mm. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Aliens. And, uh, of course this also gets into, uh, the, uh, issue, uh, that, uh, Marilyn Monroe, uh, right before she, uh, died, uh, had told friends that she was going to tell secrets that she had learned from Kennedy, both of the Kennedy brothers. And the number one secret she talked about was she said, president Kennedy, had uh, journeyed to a secret air base. I figure this is area 51. Okay. And, and viewed things from space. So he knew, he knew. In fact, there's a real interesting tie in there. Back in the forties, there was a government uh, group called the interplanetary phenomenon group, which when I first heard about that, I said, Oh, that's just gotta be some kind of joke, you know, <laughs> but it was very real. It's been documented. There are documents now found from this group. And in 1947, they actually produced a report on the Roswell crash. And it is pretty specific and pretty out there. They talked about two different landing zones, LZ one, LZ two. They talked about multiple bodies being found. They talked about uh, the whole thing. They, and they gave names, dates, places. They also were the first that I know that mentioned that before the crash in Roswell, there were all kinds of sightings around New Mexico. And in fact, they had been picking up unidentified objects on their radar. Uh, and it was becoming quite a concern to them uh, through the first part of that week in July pre preceding the uh, crash uh, at Roswell. But in the back of this report, it said one of the few members of Congress to have knowledge of this is Representative John F. Kennedy of Massachusetts. Huh. And it said uh, he had served in naval. He was in naval intelligence I was an officer in Naval Intelligence and that he apparently had a source of information within the uh, office of the Secretary of the Air Force or, yeah, Secretary of the Air Force, I guess. Uh, at that time, it had been the Army Air, Air, Air Corps. Um, now, it's true. Uh, most people only know Kennedy's background as being the commander of the PT-109, right, in which he got sunk by Japanese uh, destroyer in the South Pacific, but it's true that prior to that, he had served in Washington with Naval Intelligence. So see, uh, that tells you that th this is a legitimate report. And that tells you that us that Kennedy, as far back as 1947, knew that uh, the Roswell was the real deal and that something very unearthly had happened there. And then that leads to the story of um, 
these two guys who worked at uh, photographers worked at area 51. Um, and uh, uh, they uh, tell the story that they didn't get to go down into the underground levels to find out where all the really top secret stuff was, but that they did work there as photographers and that they were privy to the lunchroom employee lunchroom there and said they would go in there and they, there was in the lunchroom and there was a, they got to see and meet some of these Nazi paperclip scientists. Okay. And, uh, and other people who were working in this deep underground and they tell in the fall of 62, I believe it was that the buzz was going around that the president was going to make a visit. And the attitude was kind of, oh, well, you know, don't worry, you know, we'll give him the dog and pony show and he'll go away, you know. And then afterwards, they said the tone totally shifted and that there was a big, everybody in there was angry and that the word was is that Kennedy had threatened to cut their funding uh, and, and they were all grousing and, and complaining about him, okay. So to me, what this tells me is, is that uh, Kennedy probably did go visit Area 51 and probably was given the usual tour. Nothing here to see, you know, yeah, we just have some experimental aircraft and nothing here. But since he had known since 1947 that the crash was real, there were bodies, I think he probably blew up at him and said, look, you're not telling me the truth. I'm president of the United States. I'm going to cut your budget. I'm going to, you know, you guys need to start leveling with you. And as a matter of fact, I think that might have been one of the straws that broke the camel's back. And I think there were people, military, industrial, intel intelligence people, uh, uh, higher ups at that time that said, this guy's getting out of control, you know, and he, he's going to blow national security secrets. Uh, we, we better see that something uh, is taken care of here. Well, it is fascinating to consider that we have whistleblower testimony on the record that Eisenhower uh, was actually telling the people at Area 51 that he was going to invade that base with an army division if they didn't tell him what he wanted to know about the UFO technology that was being researched there. So we see there again that power struggle between the executive branch and this kind of breakaway civilization uh, military force that's there using this technology and actively reverse engineering it. Right. And I think, uh, for my money, Eisenhower was probably the last president that was fully briefed on the uh, ET UFO situation. Uh, and uh, I think with it, once uh, Kennedy got in, they figured uh, they could uh, smooth it over with him and, 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 you know, put blinders on him, but see, he already knew. So that caused him a problem. Right now, everybody else for Johnson, of course, was their boy bought and paid for. So he wouldn't give him any trouble. And then everybody else, uh, they, they going up to uh, Richard Nixon, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that gets to the Jackie Gleason story. Jackie Gleason, the famous comedian, and told his wife and told close friends and in, even and told a, a fellow that I met personally that uh, Nixon had taken him to a secret air base and, and they had seen things from space. OK, so Nixon knew about it, too, but probably only to a limited degree. And then you get to Jimmy Carter and uh, we find out that Jimmy Carter. Well, at first you had Gerald Ford, our unelected president, and there's an interesting. <laughs> interesting story there in that uh, uh, early on back, I'd have to look and see what it was, but I think it was in the late 50s that there was a huge uh, UFO sighting up in Michigan, his uh, home state, uh, and they sent J. Allen Hynek up there, who at this time was a famous astronomer who working for the government, 
And uh, he made a press conference and said, oh, it was swamp gas. Uh, you know? <laughs> right. That's the classic right there. Classic. And in fact, that's been a joke ever since, you know, it's always swamp gas. Right. It's but, swamp gas or weather balloons. They're sort of neck and yeah, neck on that. Yeah. Well, the idea that they had all mistaken swamp gas for UFO so enraged those people in Michigan, understandably so, that they got on to their representative, Gerald Ford, and said, you know, this is not right. Gerald Ford went public and said, uh, I'm going to convene some committee hearings in Washington and we're going to study this UFO thing. We're going to find out what, get to the bottom of it, find out what's really going to happen, you know. And then all of a sudden, nothing happened, you know. There was never any hearings, never anything more. But he got to be our unelected president. Right. <laughs> so, so, see, he, you know, he, he, he kept his peace and they took care of him, okay? With the Kennedy assassination, there as there was there was never any proof that Lee Harvey Oswald fired from that sixth floor window. There were multiple gunshots from maybe multiple locations, yeah. and they were able to control the investigation and the news media and say, well, it's just one guy with these three shots, although nobody could actually see anything. There's no hard evidence. So, uh, so, But that was a prototype. They got a little better. By the time of the Robert Kennedy assassination, they had a brainwashed assassin Sirhan Sirhan standing in front of him with a gun firing okay but even though he didn't kill Robert Kennedy to this day he probably thinks he did because uh, they jumped on him and, and it was discovered later that he had hypnotic blocks and uh, same thing with uh, the guy that shot John Lennon uh, you know he just stood there smiling while the police came to get him so they had gotten a lot more sophisticated okay yeah and that, now they've actually got patsies that'll go out and do this, some of these things uh, except I think that what we'll find out is, if the truth ever comes out is that some of these people there were other people involved but once you have your patsy and once he's either dead or caught and uh, is brainwashed and doesn't really know what happened, then it's easy to say, well, that's the end of that and uh, block any further investigation. Right. Uh, and I think we see that in several of these things. And I think that uh, the next time uh, they're going to have to be written. This is one thing that I think that has saved us from a massive false flag attack up till now is that they're going to have to really put together a good scenario, okay, because there are more and more people now who are looking with suspicion when these things happen. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, my last question for you actually concerns something you wrote in your book uh, in relation to uh, your dad and your uncle, which is um, you've very bravely gone on the record saying that the official versions and those stories uh, don't hold up. Um, and with your, uh, it's the anniversary of uh, your dad's assassination on June 5th coming up some 52 years ago. Um, you wanted to set the record straight that there was someone there that night named Thane Eugene Caesar and that you thought it was important that the investigation kind of led you there eventually. You've pointed out that Thane Eugene Caesar was right behind your dad and part of hotel security, an employee of a major military contractor, and he eventually moved to Indonesia and certainly had a definite intelligence footprint. Now, the official version has Sirhan Sirhan as the assassin. Many researchers have looked into this and don't believe he could have done it, especially not alone. 
Now, a few years ago, you caused quite a stir speaking on Charlie Rose by saying that your father, Senator Robert Kennedy, didn't believe the Warren Commission conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone assassin with a magic bullet, and that he believed that the CIA was involved in President Kennedy's assassination. Many feel that your father was headed to the presidency in 1968. How did the official version of his death unravel for you? Um, but I, you know, I, I think it's clear now that, um, that Sir Han, although he fired at my father, could not have killed my father. And that was clear from the autopsy report. My father was killed from behind by four shots that were contact shots um, that were actually with a and this is what Thomas Noguchi found. Thomas Noguchi did not believe my father was killed by Zerhan. Um, Zerhan fired only two shots toward my father, and we know what happened to those bullets. One went into Paul Schrey, mm -hmm. who was the UAW organizer who was standing near him, and the other went into a, um, into a door jam behind him. And then the other six shots, when they grabbed Sirhan and they redirected his gun, he fired six more shots. We know what happened to each one of those. They all went into it. Two of them went into one person, and the others all hit people. And there were 13 shots fired that night. And uh, Sirhan only had eight chambers in his revolver, and he had no chance to unload, to reload. And the four shots that killed my father, Sirhan was always five to eight feet in front of my father, never behind him. And all four shots that hit my father came from behind, and all of them, the barrel of the gun, according to the autopsy, was touching my father's skin. Hmm. The person who likely pulled those triggers is a, um, a guy who died about two months ago called Eugene Dane Cesar. He died in the Philippines. He was a security guard that night. He had only gotten the security job um, about a week before. And, you know, when my father's schedule was already known. And his real job was that he worked at the Lockheed plant and he was a CIA asset. And those things, you know, the, 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 uh, the evidence for that is very, very strong. And a lot of the evidence was hidden by the LA police. There was a lot of monkey business that went on that's very well documented now. So it's, these are things that should be investigated. Sir Han is still in jail. My father wouldn't want that. My father was the top law enforcement officer in the United States. He believed in justice. And he would not want an innocent man in jail for his murder. Absolutely incredible. Uh, Robert, it's been great to have you here. And uh, I hope the truth does come to light on all these issues. And uh, it's quite an incredible work that you do. And of course, your family, the great legacy of work that they've done for the public. Uh, and we all appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's great and to see you. Follow me on Instagram. Yes. I was born in New Orleans in 1939. Uh, for a short length of time during my childhood, I lived in Texas and in New York. Then I entered the United States Marine Corps in 1956. Uh, I spent three years in the United States Marine Corps, starting out as a private, working my way up through the ranks uh, to the uh, 
position of buck sergeant, and uh, I served honorably, having been discharged. Then I went back to work in uh, Texas, and have recently arrived in New Orleans to, with my family, uh, with my wife and my child. Uh, I worked in Russia. Uh, I was under uh, the protection of the uh, of the. Uh, I would, that is to say, I was not under the protection of the uh, American government, but that is, I was uh, at all times uh, considered an American citizen. I did not uh, lose my uh, American citizenship. You know, sometimes history gets it wrong, and this is certainly true in the JFK assassination. The recent media circus around the 50th anniversary of this event prove that there are still powerful forces committed to keeping the truth on this subject hidden. These forces have desperately tried to put the genie back in the bottle, but they can't. Over 70% of Americans don't believe in the official story of events. They know the media had a hand in this deception. Seasoned researchers have brought forward compelling evidence that there was far more to this story than was revealed. But the corporate media would like to take us back to when the Warren Commission was the last word. A lone assassin, a magic bullet, and no questions asked. In this program, we're going to present real facts that show Lee Harvey Oswald was not the assassin of President Kennedy, and that he was, without a doubt, an intelligence asset for the CIA. We'll start by examining the key elements that were used to portray Oswald as the lone assassin by the Warren Commission. We're all aware that Oswald is supposed to have performed the shooting by using a Manlicher Carcano rifle. But what has been suppressed is that there was a different rifle found at the scene by an alert sheriff's deputy named Roger Craig. Craig's compelling testimony begins here. And uh, Boone was ahead of me by about eight feet. And there was a, there were a stack of boxes. Uh, just at the head of the stairwell, going downstairs. And Boone looked over into it and said, here it is, here's the rifle. So I immediately went over beside him and looked over and there was a rifle. But we didn't touch it until Captain Fritz and Lieutenant Day from the ID department of the Dallas Police Department got there. Now, Captain Fritz was the chief of homicide. Lieutenant Day was from the identification bureau. They got there and, uh, took some pictures of the rifle. And then uh, I believe Dave pulled the rifle out and handed it to Captain Fritz, who held it up by the, uh, had a strap on it. He held it up by the strap and asked if anyone knew what kind of rifle it was. Well, by this time, Deputy Constable Seymour Weitzman had joined us, and uh, Weitzman was a uh, gun buff. He had a sporting goods store at one time. He was very good at, with weapons, and he said it looks like a Mauser, and he walked over to Fritz, and Captain Fritz was holding the rifle up in the air, and I was standing next to Weitzman, who was standing next to Fritz, and we weren't any more than six or eight inches from the rifle and stamped right on the barrel of the rifle was 7.65 Mauser. And that's when 
Weitzman said it is a Mauser and pointed to the 7.65 Mauser stamp on the barrel. Craig's shocking testimony about the rifle being a different model than Oswald's Manlicher Carcano threatened to bring down the official version of events. He was soon fired from the police department on a pretext and found himself the target of a witness elimination program. Several attempts were made on his life and he became disabled. Finally, in May 1975, he was found with a shotgun blast to his chest. The ruling was suicide. The single magic bullet theory was the life raft the Warren Commission clung to in order to accuse Oswald of being the lone assassin. This bullet that supposedly caused seven wounds and was still in pristine condition has become a punchline in popular culture for describing something absurd. Yet without it, there is no case against Oswald as the sole shooter. Dr. Cyril Wecht, a respected forensic pathologist who's worked on such high-level cases as the O.J. Simpson trial, gives us his reasoning for coining the term the magic bullet. The single bullet theory, which I described a long time ago as the magic bullet theory. Conley sitting directly in front of the president. The bullet is coming now and it's going right from up downward, from right to left, and from back to front. Comes out, exits the president's neck. Here's Conley. The bullet in midair stops, comes back about 18 inches, and hits John Conley behind the right armpit. Not the left armpit, not the left shoulder, behind the right armpit. It goes into his chest, pierces the lung, destroys four inches of the right fifth rib, and Conley is a big bone, six foot four Texan, destroys four inches of the bone, exits from below the level of the nipple. When you look at this Zapruder film, you'll see John Conley holding the white Stetson hat like this. Here's the hat right here at this, at this level. And at that point, he's been shot and the bullet has emerged below the level of the nipple. The bullet comes out then and moving downward, it swings upward and comes up and around and hits in the back of his wrist, produces a comminuted fracture of the radius, one of the two large bones that come from the elbow to the wrist. Comminuted means a fragmented fracture, exits from the front of the right wrist, moves down into a left thigh, and the bullet that Tomlinson, the maintenance man, found at Parkland Hospital under the stretcher, which on the night of the autopsy was from President's back, which the next day was from the President's neck, five months later is from Conley's left thigh. You with me? I hope it hasn't been too long a day. You have to be mentally agile uh, to keep up with this bullet. Dr. Jeremy Gunn, the general counsel for the Assassination Record Review Board, shares Dr. Weck's view. The bullet would have been completely deformed with Commission Exhibit 399. The magic bullet uh, has almost no damage to it at all. So that, to, to me, is just not believable that Commission Exhibit 399 did all of that damage. Even if one bullet could have done it, it was not Commission Exhibit 399. And that's really the linchpin for what the uh, Warren Commission was uh, finding. There's a strange twist to how this bullet was found in this archive clip. The bullet was found here in this area, and not on that stretcher. That's the stretcher I took off the elevator. The stretcher he took off the elevator was Connolly's, so Tomlinson found the bullet on a different stretcher not connected to the case. This led critics to claim the bullet was planted. Was the bullet planted? The strange encounter by a Dallas reporter at Parkland Hospital may give us a clue. A group of uh, nurses and doctors uh, standing around with a lot of concern, and Jack Ruby came up to me. 
he said something to the effect that isn't this just terrible and uh, he looked he looked as if he was extremely distressed I shook hands with him and uh, it was very clear to me who I had talked to and uh, who I had uh, called by name and who had called me by name and who I had shaken hands with and everything but when the Warren Commission report came out they said that uh, probably under the stress of of everything that was going on that I uh, I most likely was confused and that I talked to Ruby at the police station several hours later I was dismayed when I picked up my copy of the Warren Commission report and discovered uh, what what they had decided about my testimony and um, among other things I immediately began to wonder you know who else they had talked to who they chose not to believe and why Victoria Adams worked in the Texas School Book Depository building. Her testimony about being on the stairs when Oswald was assumed to have been rushing down them posed a problem for the Warren Commission. Author Mary Ernest tells us her story. The scenario is uh, that in its 888-page report, her story was, was reduced to only two paragraphs. In a nutshell, what she did was, uh, following the shots, the third shot, she and a co-worker who were on the fourth floor of the building, they were employees there, left that window and ran out through the rear office door and down the back stairs. It was a very innocent act. She didn't realize the significance of it. As soon as she brought up the fact that she had run down, ran down the stairs, seconds after the final shot, moments after the final shot, then they were all ears. Uh, that seemed to bother them. She said she couldn't understand why, but they continually asked her about those questions. When the Warren report was issued, it dismissed her, even though um, it didn't do any of the time tests that it had done on other people involving the escape of Oswald. It didn't even mention in the Warren report that the woman, another woman, had accompanied her down the stairs. Her name was Sandra Stiles. And then they turned left onto Elm Street. And as it got just past the turn, we heard the three shots coming from we didn't know where. So we went down the stairs to the second floor, out the back door, and around the west side of the building, around to the front where we encountered a motorcycle policeman who asked us where we came from. And we told him the fourth floor, and he said, go back the way you came. So we immediately went back up the stairs and back up to our office. Except for my, my co-worker, I didn't see or hear anyone else on the stairwell that day. I did not see Lee Harvey Oswald at all or hear any sounds to indicate that there was anyone else on the stairwell at the same time. Officer Marion Baker rushed into the depository building and encountered Oswald only 90 seconds after the shooting in the second floor coffee room. He describes what happened here. As we came out of the second, on the second floor, I saw a, through a doorway, a window in this doorway, uh, a man uh, movement. So I went over and opened up the door and this man was walking away from it 
and uh, the next room I later found out was the coffee room. I called to the man and he turned around and Mr. Trudy was there beside me. I asked him if he knew this man or if he worked there. He said, yes, he does. He was calm, ordinary, you know. He didn't look excited or anything like that. The so-called evidence the Warren Commission produced was never subjected to the legal standards of a murder trial. Instead, they relied on projecting the idea that Oswald was guilty in the court of public opinion. The best example of this was the so-called backyard photos that purported to show Oswald with the alleged murder weapon. Now, of course, we know just how easy it is to alter a photograph, therefore, as evidence, it's of no value. Judge Jim Garrison weighed in on a key piece of evidence that suggests Oswald was not the shooter. The paraffin test would show whether or not you fired a rifle. The results were available before the end of the day. They showed that Oswald had not fired a rifle. But the way that that was handled was it was announced to the world that the paraffin test showed that he had fired a rifle. Chief, we understand you have the results of the paraffin test which were made to determine whether Oswald had fired a weapon. Can you tell us what I those tests that showed? Was, I understand that it was positive. The fingerprints on the boxes added up to the fingerprints of a large number of policemen, one unidentified man, and no fingerprints of Lee Oswald. The evidence in this case had a tendency to suddenly change when it was required that no loose ends be left hanging. For example, Dallas police initially reported that they'd found only two bullet shell casings and gave them to the FBI. When the Warren Commission used the same report in their findings, the number magically changed to three spent shells instead of two. A pattern we've seen before, getting the evidence to match the preordained conclusion, not using the real evidence to reach a real conclusion. When it came to fingerprints on the rifle, we can observe this pattern again. The rifle held no fingerprints of Lee Oswald, and this looked bad to investigators trying to link Oswald to the shooting. The rifle was sent to the FBI for further analysis, and still nothing. Then, after a few weeks, it was announced that a smudged palm print was discovered on the rifle, and suddenly it matched. Oswald's mortician shared some insight on this matter. I had gotten to the funeral home with his body uh, something in the neighborhood of 11 o'clock at night, and uh, it is a several-hour procedure to prepare the remains. And after, after this time, someplace in the early, early morning, uh, agents came. Now, I say agents because I'm not familiar at the moment with uh, whether they were Secret Service or FBI or what they were. But agents did come. And when they did come, they, um, they fingerprinted. And the only reason that we knew they did, they were carrying a, a satchel and uh, the equipment to, and asked us uh, if they might have the preparation room to themselves. And after it was all over, uh, we found ink uh, on Lee Harvey's hands uh, showing that they had fingerprinted him and palm printed him. Uh, we had to take that ink back off in order to uh, prepare him for uh, burial and to eliminate that ink. Obviously, with no chain of evidence for the rifle and mysterious visits to Oswald's corpse, the palm print appears to be another false entry in the record and would not stand up to any normal legal standard. But we must ask ourselves, if the palm print was faked and a different rifle was found on the second floor and the magic bullet was just an absurd device to make Oswald look guilty, 
then what would have happened had he lived and gone to trial? Dr. Jeremy Gunn gives us his view. I think that if Oswald had gone to trial uh, and the judge had properly applied the rules of evidence and a jury had uh, made finding of facts based upon the law, Oswald would have been found not guilty because most of the evidence the Warren Commission used would not have been admissible in a trial against Lee Harvey Oswald. One of the fascinating things about the official story is the number of people who promoted it that didn't actually believe it. Now the question can be asked, why should we? President Johnson, who appointed the Warren Commission, is a good place to start. I can't uh, honestly say that I've ever been completely relieved of the fact that uh, there might have been international connections. You mean you still feel that there might, might have been? Uh, well, I have not completely discounted. Well, that would seem to indicate that you... Uh, don't have full confidence in the Warren Commission no. report. No, I think the Warren Commission's study and I think first of all is composed the ablest, most judicious, bipartisan men in this country. Second, I think they had only one objective and that was the truth. The third, I think they were competent and did the best they could. But I don't think that they are me or anyone else is always absolutely sure of every uh, thing that might have motivated Oswald or uh, others that uh, could have been involved. Johnson and Warren Commission member Richard Russell discussed how they both rejected the magic bullet theory shortly before the Warren report was published. The commission believed that the same bullet that hit Kennedy hit Connolly. Well, I don't believe it. I don't either. Governor John Connolly, who was wounded with President Kennedy, also rejects the magic bullet theory. I know a little something about uh, firearms and a little something about velocity of bullets and, and the speed of sound as compared to it. And I know when I hear a shot and uh, I have time to uh, turn and react and not only turn one direction but uh, attempt to turn in another direction, uh, before I feel the impact of anything, I know that bullet wasn't in transit that long. Now, that's all there is to it. Nobody ever convinced me otherwise. Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry, who handled the initial investigation, tells us why he doesn't believe the official version of events put forward by the Warren Commission. But just in my mind, and by the uh, direction of the of the blood and brain from the president from one of the shots, it, it would just seem that uh, it ha would have to be fired from the front rather than behind. I can't say that I would could swear that I believe there was one man and one man alone. I think that there's a possibility there could have been another man. Oswald's wife, Marina, whose pressured testimony was used to convict Oswald in the public eye, now believes he was innocent and was manipulated to take the fall. Lee wasn't guilty of the crime that he was um, convicted. Well, he was convicted by only one committee. He never had the trial. The Warren Commission pinned not only the murder of the president to Lee Oswald, but also the shooting of a police officer named Tippett. 
But what did Oswald have to say in answer to these severe charges? I really don't know what the, what the situation is about. Nobody has told me anything except that I'm accused of, uh, of uh, murdering a police I know nothing more than that, and I do request uh, for someone to come forward to give me uh, a legal assistance. Did you kill the president? No, I've not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. Uh, the first thing I heard about it was when the newspaper reporters in the hall uh, asked me that question. You have been. Nobody said what? Sir? You have been. Nobody said what? Okay. What are you doing right Even in the early investigations of researchers like Mark Lane, the subject of Oswald's relationship with the CIA kept coming up. His high security clearance, his proximity to covert operations, led New Orleans DA Jim Garrison to investigate his intelligence connections, and he found that there were many. If you, the people of the United States, will learn the truth that the president was assassinated by men who were once connected with the Central Intelligence Agency, of course, this might reflect on the dignity of the CIA. But I happen to believe that our form of government is strong enough to survive the truth. I am trying to tell you that there is no question as a result of our investigation that an element of the Central Intelligence Agency of our country killed John Kennedy and that the present administration is concealing the facts. There is no question about it at all. That is your opinion? No, it is not. I know it, and if you will just wait, you will see that history will support this as If you just keep in mind who profited most from the assassination, and then ask yourself some questions. Who appointed the members of the Warren Commission? And who runs the CIA, which has concealed a tremendous amount of evidence? Garrison was relentless in his pursuit of the intelligence connections to Oswald and the JFK assassination. With public interest surging in his investigation, he would charge Clay Shaw, a New Orleans businessman with ties to central intelligence, with conspiracy in the assassination. Garrison's case was covertly damaged by CIA operatives. From there, media interest turned into a steady effort to discredit him and portray his efforts as grandstanding. Years later, long out of the spotlight, Garrison would never waver from his core beliefs. Lee Harvey Oswald killed no one at all. So the point is, it wasn't a question of being alone or with anybody. He had nothing to do with the assassination. He was employed by the Central Intelligence Agency. And he was obviously drawn into a scapegoat situation and made to believe, ultimately, that he was penetrating the assassination. And then when the time came, they took the scapegoat, the man who thought he was working for the United States government, and killed him real quick. And then the machinery disinformation machinery started turning and they started making a villain out of a man who genuinely was probably here.
Oswald's activities in the summer before the assassination were linked with his work for a shadowy figure who was formerly with the FBI named Guy Bannister, whose office at 544 Camp Street was a focal point of anti-communist activity. It was an old antiquated building um, on the corner of Lafayette and Camp, right near Lafayette Square. And um, Bannister had his office there. I had been in it on occasion. And uh, I went in there one time with Lee to view some uh, arms that they had brought from an old blimp bay. Certainly not pro-Castro. He's an ex-FBI agent from New York uh, who is a violently uh, anti-Castro uh, and working to uh, overthrow Castro. If Lee Harvey Oswald is connected to Bannister, uh, then the pro-Castro activity seems to be a sham. Yes, I saw them once in the Mancuso's restaurant on the ground floor of the infamous 544 Camp Street building. This is sometime during the summer of 1963. I went across the street to get a cup of coffee, and which I did, and there were Bannister and Oswald sitting together at the table chatting with each other. Guy Bannister's office served as headquarters for something that we later found out was called Operation Mongoose. And they had amassed huge stockpiles of weapons and ammunition that were constantly being brought in and out of Guy Bannister's office. I came across the fact that Oswald, a private in the Marines, had taken a Russian examination. And I knew the privates did not take Russian examinations unless they were connected with intelligence. So that caused me to be curious about 544 Camp, which was the address stamped on one circular that they gave out one time before, obviously, Bannister told them, leave no more addresses. It turned out that was a side address of Guy Bannister's private detective agency. Well, I went down there to look at it. Well, this is uh, the address which Lee Oswald gave for his first fair play for Cuba pamphlets. Now, this building, 544 Camp Street, is the building in which Guy Bannister had his office on the side. Guy Bannister, of course, is the most militant, the most militant uh, uh, right-wing, uh, uh, extremely conservative, anti-communist individual in the city of New Orleans. There is simply no question about the fact that the Riley Comp Coffee Company was a nesting place for Lee Oswald. He was put here. This was his CIA assignment. In other words, as I pointed out before, his immediate superiors in Dallas and his immediate superiors in the CIA in New Orleans are involved in the assassination. Not might be, they are involved. And consequently, the impression was created uh, on his part that he was following orders and he just had to stay at the Riley Coffee Company until the time came when he was to penetrate uh, the right-wing operation here. I used to be in the FBI. I knew people in naval intelligence, and they were either across the street, around the corner. The whole intelligence community was there. And right in the middle of it was Guy Bannister having Oswald sheet dip as a communist. He was he employed by the Central Intelligence Colonel Fletcher Prouty served as Chief of Special Operations for the Joint Chiefs of Staff and Liaison for the Military and CIA during JFK's presidency. Now, in the case of Lee Harvey Oswald, he was in a unit, a Marine unit, 
which was tied up with the U-2 program with CIA activities. His uh, relief from active duty, as you'll recall, is something that happened in a few hours one day. Well, I don't think that was a normal change. I think that was another one of these sheep-dipping operations. Prouty's suspicion was piqued when he was sent to New Zealand during the time of the assassination. While there, he came across an early report of the tragedy and something else. Detailed information about the alleged assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, hours before he was actually charged with the crime. Very interestingly, it gave the whole biographical story of this young man, Lee Harvey Oswald. And of course, we read every word of that, inside the thing, a whole bunch of it on the inside page, plus a picture of Oswald in a nice business suit, white shirt on, necktie on. Have you ever seen a picture of Oswald dressed like that? Of all, when I got back to the States, I kept looking through newspapers everywhere to find a picture of Oswald in a business suit. But that's what had been sent by radio photo somehow to the newspapers around the world before the police in Dallas had arranged, arranged him. I took that paper home and I, through my resources in the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I made phone calls and checked things out. That information that appeared in that paper about Oswald's biography and everything, all of that part of it, had been written and sent before the police in Dallas had arraigned the man. How could a reporter be working on just some 24-year-old boy and, and have the story all ready to go if he didn't know from the police who they had charged with the crime? So ever since then, I've been building up more and more information to see these things that were manufactured as a cover story ever since that murder. And of course, the biggest cover story is the Warren Commission report. Lieutenant Colonel Dan Marvin, former Green Beret, recalls how, during his training for special operations involving assassination, he was given unusual insights into the murder of JFK by his CIA instructors. Marvin describes here how Oswald's true role was revealed to the special operations recruits. On the John F. Kennedy situation, that was brought to our attention as a classic example of the way to organize a, a complete uh, program to eliminate a nation's leader uh, while pointing the finger at a lone assassin. It involved also the cover-up uh, of the assassination itself. We had considerable detail. They had a, a mock layout of the, the plaza in that area and showed where the shooters were and, and where the routes were to the hospital. I don't remember where those were now. They had quite a bit of movie uh, film coverage, it seemed like, you know, thinking back to that time, and some still photos of uh, the grassy knoll and, and places like that. They told us that um, Oswald was not involved in the shooting at all. He was the patsy. He was the one that was set up. We did, uh, myself and a friend of mine, form a very distinct impression that the CIA was involved in Kennedy's assassination. During a coffee break, we overheard one of the CIA instructors say to the other, things really did go well in Daly Plaza, didn't it? Or something to that effect. And that just reinforced or really added to our suspicions. And we really felt uh, before the end of the train was over that one of those instructors may have been involved himself in the assassination of John F. Kennedy.
Oswald always seemed to be handled by someone behind the scenes as he worked on high security bases like Atsugi in Japan, or in his apparent defection to the Soviet Union. Let's take a look at some of these handlers. We'll start with George de Mornschild, who JFK researcher Joan Mellon has just completed a new book on. Well, George de Mornschild was actually born in Russia. His family left at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution and went to Poland, and eventually George de Mornschild came to the United States in 1938 by himself. By 1957, he was working for CIA in the uh, International Cooperation Administration, which is something like what they call AID today. It was a CIA front. And along the way, CIA enlisted George de Mornschild to keep tabs, this is his word, keep tabs on Lee Harvey Oswald, who had returned from the Soviet Union and was living in Dallas and also in Fort Worth. And so de Mornschild took Oswald under his wing, took him to parties, introduced him to people and really kept a watch on him. And it's, it was very dangerous for de Mornschild to do this as it turned out later, because what it meant after the assassination of President Kennedy that CIA had knowledge of Oswald before the assassination, something that they have not admitted to this day. As time went by, Timornschild seemed to express some remorse for having helped the Warren Commission portray Oswald as the lone assassin. I actually believe that he was a very sincere person, and with me, he was extremely sincere, because I treated him almost uh, like a son of mine. You know, he could have been a son by his, by his age. Uh, or as a soldier in my regiment. This pattern continued, and de Mornschild was starting to sound like he was exonerating Oswald more and more. I remember talking to him and looking at the cover of Life magazine, which has the picture of President Kennedy, and he commented, commented how handsome he was, how young, how attractive. Uh, again, I think this appealed to him, and he, every time he spoke about President Kennedy, he spoke kindly of his effort to uh, improve the racial relations in the United States. And from that point of view, he definitely had love and respect for President Kennedy. As the 70s dawned and congressional investigations started new JFK murder probes, DeMornschild started to complain to friends that he felt he was under surveillance. As fate would have it, he was old friends with then-CIA director George H.W. Bush, a future president. He wrote Bush, telling him that he was being harassed by murky groups. Quote, Maybe you'll be able to bring a solution into the hopeless situation I find myself in. My wife and I find ourselves surrounded by some vigilantes. Our phone bugged, and we are being followed everywhere. We are driven to insanity by this situation tried to write stupidly and unsuccessfully about Lee H. Oswald and must have angered a lot of people. Could you do something to remove this net around us? This will be my last request for help." Unquote. The circle of intrigue had tightened around to Mornschild, and when the subpoena came for him to testify before Congress, he was found dead in his Florida home.
David Atlee Phillips was the CIA's chief of all operations in the Western Hemisphere at the time of the assassination. Phillips cultivated anti-Castro groups and specialized in creating covert paramilitary units. One of these units was called Alpha 66. The leader of that unit, Antonio Vesiana, is on record saying that Phillips, using the pseudonym Maurice Bishop, was working with Lee Harvey Oswald. Actually, Harvey Oswald in Dallas, uh, in a meeting of 10 or 15 minutes with Mr. Maurice Bishop in Dallas in that time. And you feel certain that Oswald was working with or associated with American intelligence? Well, at least he was associated with Maurice Bishop. And if Maurice Bishop was uh, intelligence, he, is, he was working for an intelligence service in the United States, I don't doubt that, that he was working with him. Though Vesiana was harassed and even shot for his testimony, he came out on the 50th anniversary of the JFK assassination and gave this statement, quote, Maurice Bishop, my CIA contact agent, was David Atlee Phillips. Phillips, or Bishop, was the man I saw with Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas in September 1963, unquote. I had an affinity for Cuba. The Cuban people are marvelous. Um, I'd seen what was going on there. And many of the participants in the Bay of Pigs were on that landing force because I had known them personally in Cuba. Phillips died in 1988 but he left behind a strangely confessional, unpublished manuscript, a novel about a CIA officer who trained Oswald. I was one of the two case officers who handled Lee Harvey Oswald. After working to establish his Marxist bona fides, we gave him the mission of killing Fidel Castro in Cuba. I helped him when he came to Mexico City to obtain a visa and when he returned to Dallas to wait for it. I saw him twice there. We rehearsed it many times. In Havana, Oswald was to assassinate Castro with a sniper's rifle from the upper floor window of a building. Upper floor window of a building. One last Phillips confession was related by his nephew, musician Sean Phillips, to JFK researcher Gary Buell. In an email, Sean wrote how his father, Jim, pressed David Attlee as he was dying for the truth. Quote, Jim knew at this point that David was in some way seriously involved in this matter, and he and David argued rather vehemently. Finally, as David was dying of irreversible lung cancer, he called Jim, and there was apparently no reconciliation between them. As Jim asked David pointedly, were you in Dallas on that day? David said, yes. And Jim hung up the phone, unquote. E. Howard Hunt was best known as one of the Watergate burglars and the scandal that brought down the Nixon presidency. He was also the CIA chief of covert action during JFK's presidency. Before he died, he shared information with his son, St. John Hunt, that the CIA had participated in the JFK assassination. He refers here to three agents' involvement, William Harvey, David Atlee Phillips, and Cord Meyer plus a surprise mastermind of the entire operation. Now that uh, David Phillips apparently met with Oswald in Mexico City yeah. before the assassination, you've said that Bill Harvey uh, may very well have recruited a, a French or Corsican yeah. gunman to shoot, and you've also said that Cord Meyer had a motive in that his wife was having an affair with John F. Kennedy. I heard from Frank that uh, LBJ had uh, 
a designated uh, Cord Meyer Jr. to uh, undertake a larger organization while keeping it totally secret. I think that uh, LBJ settled on uh, Meyer as a uh, as an opportunist, parent like himself, a parent, and a man who had very little left to him in life ever since JFK had uh, had taken Cord's wife as one of his uh, mistresses. Now you have three CIA officials uh, who had, let's say, the means, motive, and opportunity, or, you know, or some connection to kill Kennedy. That's true. I could just visualize Harvey and LBJ forming a kind of a thieves uh, compact between them. There was nobody <coughs> with the leverage that uh, LBJ had, no competitor. He was the vice president, and if he wanted to get rid of uh, the president, then he had ability to do so by corrupting uh, different uh, people in CIA. And he had to do it with the limitations of CIA because there was no other group that honored, uh, if I could use, use that term, honored the uh, clandestine limitations the way CIA did. They could do something, turn their back on it, and move on to something else. It was not like a, a military. There was no accounting in that sense. Creating a legend by utilizing lookalikes to build a character profile is an established intelligence method. In Oswald's case, shady CIA-related assets were involved in building a picture of him that would later be used to betray him as unstable or even as a fanatic. Too often there are reports of Oswald in two places at once. Even FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover in 1960, three years before the assassination, wrote a memo that suggested someone may be using Oswald's identity. When the CIA sent pictures of Oswald visiting the Mexico City Cuban Embassy, the figure was so different from the Oswald the world would all see just two months later that they had to retract the report and claim they were mistaken. Then they claimed the photos were destroyed, and finally that the cameras were broken on the day that Oswald visited both the Cuban and Soviet embassies. Former CIA director Richard Helms claimed in a PBS interview to be baffled by all of the discrepancies. It's my recollection that at the time of Oswald's presence in Mexico City, there was something wrong with some of the cameras that we were using. We were trying to fix it. But the fact remains that there are no photographs of Lee Harvey Oswald taken while he was in Mexico City at that time, and I can't explain 100% why not. Although Helms claimed this to be the case, the CIA station chief in Mexico City, Wynne Scott, kept a diary that clearly stated they had photos of Oswald, or someone claiming to be him, at the embassy during his visit. Persons watching these embassies photographed Oswald as he entered and left, and clocked the time spent on each visit. 
That's fine for Wynn Scott to say, but he has no evidence to demonstrate it. And he couldn't produce the photograph. So what is he talking about? Helms found himself in denial mode once again when Warren Commission counsel David Slauson came forward and said the CIA had played tapes for him of Oswald recorded at the Cuban embassy. The CIA's official position was that all the tapes had been destroyed. Just in the normal course of business, that after the tapes had been transcribed and the material was put on paper, then the tapes were routinely erased and used again. They said to us, it was Winscott, that, uh, uh, would you like to listen to the tapes of this particular one? I can't remember now whether it was a wiretap or a bug. Um, so they played a little bit of it for us. Could be that... Um, the one that we were offered to list, the opportunity to listen to was the only one that hadn't been destroyed. Now, even that, just one not having been destroyed, would show that, that uh, Mr. Helms' statement was incorrect. The key question is this. If Oswald had been at these two embassies demanding an exit visa, then why would the CIA destroy the tapes and photos of his visit? Unless it was not Oswald, but a double who had visited these embassies and had been sent by someone who was trying to incriminate Oswald as a communist six weeks before the assassination. In the mid-90s, former director Helms continued his denial tour, but in one interview he was caught off guard by local CBS reporter Richard Bernstein on the CIA's true role in the assassination. This is their encounter. And I am simply saying this on television because I would like the American public to understand that the CIA was not involved in that assassination, regardless of what anybody says. I tell you, we checked up on it later, not only at the time, but then we checked out when the Warren Commission was sitting and so forth, to be sure that nobody had been in Dallas on that particular day. You did that in, in, in November of 1963? Of course. Why did you do that? Had anybody you accused the CIA sure at the time? So who asked you to check where your own agents were? Well, we did that on our own. Why? Well, because I just thought it was a wise thing to do. Why? I, because it, under the circumstances, you would have thought that it would be a nice thing to know if we had had any people. It might have been very useful if we had people in Dallas at the, on that particular time. They might have been able to contribute something to this. They might have been in the crowd watching the... the Is that why you checked, or did you check because you thought maybe some of your guys might have I did not think that anybody was involved. And don't try and make me say it. Was there a feeling that there was reason to be scared of the fact that the President of the United States was that mad at the CIA? Well, we were unhappy, but there's nothing we could do about it. What would, what would you suggest that one do under the circumstances? Well, you know what people have suggested you did under the circumstances. What was that? You had the President killed. Well, that's ridiculous. Absolutely untrue. Emphatically. Can you prove that? How would you expect me to prove it?
Judith Ferry Baker was a young advanced science student recruited out of high school by experts in cancer research to join their medical program in New Orleans. She discovered that her two superiors, renowned Dr. Elton Oshner and his assistant, Dr. Mary Sherman, were involved in an anti-communist intelligence operation to develop a cancer weapon to use against foreign enemies. It was in this nexus of associations that she met Lee Harvey Oswald, who she says was working for the CIA. I caught up with Judy to ask her about her time in New Orleans in 1963 with Lee Oswald. Now, Judy, let's start from the point where you're in New Orleans and you realize what the program you've been recruited into is about. Here I am on in a secret project that's being sponsored by people who are connected with the CIA and the objective is to kill Castro. I understand why they recruited you into this program because of your cancer expertise. Why did they want Lee Oswald? Lee Oswald is a wonderful uh, associate for this because first, nobody's gonna consider him having anything to do with biological weapons. Second, he is really one of ours, but he can pose and he will later that summer as pro-Castro so that he can dirty himself up to like he looks like he's communist so he can go down there and safely take the biological weapon to Mexico City. So he's working for the CIA? Absolutely. Also for the FBI. Mm -hmm. uh, for both of them. Now, you were both placed at the Riley Coffee Company, and you helped Lee maintain the visage that he was there when most of the time he wasn't. I'm clocking him out at 5 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 5 right on the nose, because I, I am the vice president's secretary, and I can just get right in line in there and get that <laughs> sucker you know, uh, stamped, because I, I am an efficient person. So he's got all these precise clock outs. He's not there. Right. So he's off working with Guy Bannister or posing as a Marxist. Now, you had a close relationship with him. Did he ever tell you how his intelligence work led him to New Orleans in 1963? He wouldn't uh, tell me a lot of things. But finally, he said he couldn't because he would be dangerous. So on the 27th of July, he tells me, they're not letting me advance in the company. They're, there's something the matter. And he's afraid they're going to end up using him, you know, killing him off. They'll use him somewhere because he's expendable. Uh -huh. uh, finally, he gave up and told me and he started confiding me from then on. Okay, you've mentioned the company. So that is the CIA you're referring to. So he called it the company, the CIA. He was borrowed by the CIA from the ONI. And he went through rigorous training, and uh, one of the people he worked with, in fact, uh, had a nervous breakdown and couldn't take the pressure. They were training him against MK Ultra, against being able to be hypnotized and things like that, against uh, being able to be brainwashed. And this one guy had a nervous breakdown. They shot him. They killed him because he was far deep in the program. They couldn't. They said it was a suicide, of course. Now, Oswald seemed to be incredibly cool under pressure. Well, that's why he had been trained. And he was incredibly cool. And he said, even he's on record as saying, I am, uh, you know, I've been trained to handle soft interrogations and hard ones. You know, but back up any of that, he could take it. So they could not break him. They have to kill him because they, eventually he's going to say something that he could, he can't say again. I can't say I, he's CIA or anything like that because they would have killed, executed all his contacts. Now, you met and worked with David Ferry, who was a CIA contract pilot and also Oswald's instructor in the Civil Air Patrol when he was in his teens. Can you tell us about him? Uh, he's an intelligent man, 
uh, they loved him. They, you know, a gifted pilot, linguist who could speak many different languages, intelligent, scientifically trained. And of course, he's advertising himself in the directory as Dr. David Ferry, psychologist. Oh, he's he's works with Dr. Heath and others that are involved with the CIA. They were interested in David Ferry in New Orleans because he had a lot of friends in the in the uh, French Quarter, and you know, that were involved with. Well, they believed in Santeria. They believed in voodoo, and we're talking then about zombies. CIA was looking into all kinds of any kind of chemical, mind-altering chemicals. I mean, a zombie is kind of interesting. How? What were the drugs that they used? David Ferry knew the people that were involved with things like that, so he, that's how he re- basically originally got involved. Of course, all the pro-Warren Commission writers who said that Oswald did not know Ferry and could not have were proved wrong when the photo of them together in the Civil Air Patrol was found. Oswald entered the Civil Air Patrol in New Orleans at the age of 15. He was in David Ferry's unit. Ferry may have been the crucial link to how Oswald was recruited by intelligence groups. Of course, this is the same David Ferry who was associated with Guy Bannister and charged by Jim Garrison for conspiracy in the JFK assassination. Garrison showed clear links between Ferry, Bannister, and Oswald. But a strange thing happened on the way to trial. Ferry was found dead in his apartment. Oswald was first charged with shooting Officer Tippett after the assassination. Then suddenly, he was also charged with the murder of President Kennedy. His detention was unusual. No legal counsel, no records kept of his long interrogation. With his intelligence training, it dawned on him that he was being set up as the scapegoat of the century. Oswald is hustling. Here comes a man again. I, uh, I don't know what this is all about. I work in that building. Were you in the building? Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Back up, man. Come on, the no, they're taking me in because of the fact that I live in the Looking back, it's obvious that Oswald had to be eliminated for the plan to work. He knew too much and was in too deep. The man selected for the hit was mafia-connected, gun-running nightclub owner Jack Ruby. Ruby later claimed that hidden forces were behind the assassination of JFK. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. The people had, that had so much to gain and had such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. 
will never let the true facts come of our voice to the to the world. Now these people are in very high position here. Yes. We can clearly see in the testimony of people like Judy Baker and in the exhaustive research by investigators that Lee Oswald was not the lone assassin as portrayed by the Warren Commission and the media. The evidence against him was hollow and his innocence appears obvious. We can also see that Oswald was an intelligence asset of some kind and that the CIA has done their best to cover up their relationship with him. And they've had help over the years. The major media companies have obstructed the truth in this case and slandered those who have brought forward compelling facts. Let's remember that in 1979, the House Assassination Congressional Committee found a probable conspiracy in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, but the media never followed up on it. Now, after 50 years, we as Americans need to set the record straight. The whole world is watching and waiting. I'm Dark Journalist. Thank you for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you soon.
Hi, this is Dark Journalist. In my investigations into political assassinations, I found something absolutely incredible. That the covert forces behind the assassinations, right down to the patsies that they selected, were directly associated with advanced technology and the UFO file. Now, I've referred to this as X-technology because of an obscure naming mechanism called X-steganography that is utilized when it is moved through various government agencies. I found evidence for a group that we will call X-Protect that employs lethal means to hide the secret X-technology in the UFO file. Now, X-Protect exists in the shadowy corridor where the intelligence community meets with secret aerospace defense contractors. I'm going to present breakthrough evidence that will show clearly that the assassinations of JFK, RFK, and MLK, which changed the ruling structure of America and the world, were directly connected to X-Protect. The impact on our lives economically, geopolitically, technologically, psychologically, and even spiritually from these events cannot be overstated. This information has been hiding in plain sight for decades. The startling revelations around their activities and the direct correlation between the UFO file assassins and the X-Technology will be revealed here for the first time in great detail and will change our understanding of history forever. The facts and testimony presented will be unmistakable. Let's get started. By 1947, billionaire Howard Hughes had carved out a unique space for his company, Hughes Aircraft, setting records and snapping up the lion's share of government military contracts. Born in 1904, Hughes had come a long way since both of his parents had died, leaving the 19-year-old the sole heir to a massive fortune built by his father at Hughes Tool Company in Texas, which patented an innovative rotary drill bit that revolutionized oil drilling during the Texas oil boom. Hughes would go on to become a fantastically successful movie producer, running RKO Studios and even directing the controversial favorite The Outlaw, featuring Jane Russell. But his real love was aviation, and he had become legendary with his spectacular flying successes, like his flight around the world in three days, and also some bizarre entries, including the reconnaissance aircraft, the XF-11, which Hughes crashed flying low into Beverly Hills, but survived. There were also what appeared to be spectacular failures, like the Hughes H-4 Hercules, the so-called Spruce Goose, a massive flying boat unlike anything seen before it. There were rumors that Hughes was keeping a major secret so competitors couldn't discover what he was working on. An innovation so great it would change aviation forever. The spiraling rumors and Hughes' enemies got so out of hand that Hughes had to testify before a Senate committee investigating the lack of transparency around his secretive plans and designs. When Senator Brewster realized that he was fighting a battle against public opinion, a losing battle, he folded up and took a run-out powder. In 1948, Hughes created the Aerospace Group with a vision of conquering space travel. According to reports, he was spurred on in part by seeing some unusual debris when he was called into Roswell in mid-1947 to observe the strange material. Roswell would become the first known UFO crash when residents reported seeing unusual lights in the sky, and a rancher named Mac Brazel told authorities about a large-scale debris field scattered on his ranch from a crash craft of some kind. Intelligence officer Major Jesse Marcel from the 509th Atomic Bomb Group was the first to see the wreckage. 
He described a mysterious metal that wouldn't bend or burn, along with strange markings that resembled Egyptian hieroglyphics. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of, because I was being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about all materials used in aircraft and in our air travel. This was nothing like that. It could not be. It could not have been. The Army covered up the crash, explaining it away as a weather balloon. But a select group of aviation specialists were called in to view the UFO crash remains. According to several accounts from retired military personnel, Hughes was asked for his expertise, but reportedly attempted to take over the entire operation of examining the UFO wreckage. Hughes was asked to leave the project. The legendary aviator had imparted to a flying friend that he had observed UFOs before for many years. Bruce Morgan, the son of Hollywood film star Yvonne DiCarlo, who dated Hughes in the period between 1946 and 1948, recalls how her cousin, Kenneth Ross McKenzie, a pilot in the Canadian Air Force who flew with Hughes, described his fascination with these unknown craft. Her cousin, Ken Ross McKenzie, who was in the Canadian RCAF. Ken Ross McKenzie took flights with Howard Hughes, and during that time, when they were up at altitude flying around, Howard Hughes had some kind of kinship with Ken because when they were alone in that plane, the conversations got very personal about why Hughes was interested in these strange craft. He said, I'm a designer and I want to know. There was very little looking out of the window at night, as most pilots will tell you, but what did come through sometimes, like big flashing beacons and the speed of them, uh, as Hughes related, he said, I'm an aircraft designer. I don't know where this stuff is from, but I sometimes get envious as we're working on things. Whoever the hell is up here using this is way ahead of me. And um, he wanted to know about design. And he figured, well, this has got to be the cutting edge if these things are going that fast. And Hughes talked about this stuff and then wanted to show Yvonne something. Morgan relates how Hughes wanted to show Yvonne DiCarlo something that had crashed in an area outside of Las Vegas. The area was called Rose Wells. Morgan describes what happened here. And he's taking Yvonne up in their plane, in his plane, personally. And they go up to what I think was Reno, to a place called the Mapes. Now, the time standard we're talking about here is somewhere between 46, 1946, and it couldn't be later than 49 because at that point she was involved with the Prince of Iran, Abdurreza Palab. So it had to be before 49. And sometimes her and Hughes would be in several places in Hollywood. And he was always the odd guy out, but always invited because he was interesting. On this occasion, they, they went up to a place and spent three solid days together. So after three days of the, all things must come to an end, and he says, I want to show you something interesting on the way back. And he started to make calls because you have to shift over to get to the 95 to get to the area which was designated in the phone call as Rose Wells, which is on very old maps, but nowhere now. What he conveyed to her was that this had been a crash and there was something interesting. And she said, oh, sure. And as she started packing, she started to get feelings. and. What she told me as to why she even remembered this was that she said, I suddenly realized if I saw what he was going to show me, I would never get it out of my mind. And, and she said, let's go back to Hollywood. Now, why this story got told years later is the following. She's sitting long past normal retirement, maybe a few more years to live, and she's watching a documentary on Bob Lazar. 
describing his adventure on looking at the inside of a UFO. Specifically, I think it was called the sport model. And he stuck his head in and he described his feelings, but more than anything else, what Yvonne keyed in with was when he said, I didn't feel like I belonged there. And she suddenly realized, she said, I believe he's telling the truth. And it made her remember and then tell me about this event with Hughes. Because of the, what Lazar said, she said, I remember this. And I remember thinking, I don't want to see this. She could already feel something about this. And maybe, who knows, maybe she could even visualize it in her mind because the whole family on the DiCarlo side was psychic. And she said, if I see this, uh, I'll never get it out of my mind. Years later, DiCarlo would reflect on her relationship with the mysterious aviator. Did you have a fling with Howard Hughes? <laughs> No, it was more than a fling. It was a, it was a romance for about three years. Yeah. Oh, he was wonderful then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He and taught me how to fly. Uh, he wouldn't marry me, so I gave him up. The strange destination that Hughes wanted to bring DiCarlo to, called Rose Wells, was eventually removed from official maps of the area. But Morgan found these examples showing exactly where it was. The one that I showed you was the oldest. That goes back to like 1911, you know, really old. Then it disappears, and what you get around it is the area of Pahrump, where Ard Bell was, so that people know, well, where is this? You're north of Indian Springs, you're south of Mercury, and you're on the 95, and you're looking off to your left if you're going north, which means it's on the west side of the highway. And it's, it's not that far off, but it, it has disappeared as a stated place uh, on the map. UFO crash sites disappearing off maps, a strong desire to replicate the UFO X technology that he had witnessed during his own flights. Hughes had gone deep into the UFO mystery, and soon other covert forces would be looking to use that fact to their advantage. Robert Mayhew was a CIA operative involved in black ops and assassinations since the 1940s. He joined the Hughes organization in 1954 and became a chief aide, controlling Hughes' Nevada operations. From the start, he cast a dark shadow with his web of CIA connections over all of Hughes' activities. In 1975, he confessed to the Church Committee investigating CIA atrocities that in 1960, he had met with mobster Johnny Roselli on behalf of CIA director Alan Dulles to assassinate Cuban leader Fidel Castro. Dulles was fired by JFK in 1961 for attempts to draw the U.S. into a war with Cuba. Mayhew's role in the assassination of Senator Robert Kennedy in 1968 can now be revealed. John Meyer, the number two man in the Hughes organization, has put on record that Mayhew carried out the assassination. I'm John Meyer, former advisor to the recluse billionaire Howard Hughes. Among my acquaintances at that time were members of the Nixon family, Vice President Hubert Humphrey, head of the FBI J. Edgar Hoover, Paul Schrade, who was shot at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, along with Robert Kennedy, Harry Evans, who was six feet away from Kennedy when he, Kennedy, was shot, and numerous others that are pertinent to this tragic event. The Hughes organization was involved in the assassination of Robert Kennedy in 1968. 
Meyer witnessed some of the most important operations of the Hughes organization in the 1960s. Seeing them become involved in Robert Kennedy's assassination was a devastating shock to him. Coming into the 1968 presidential election, President Lyndon Johnson had withdrawn from the race when Senator Robert Kennedy had entered. Kennedy, who had served as Attorney General in his brother John F. Kennedy's administration and had become a senator after President Kennedy's assassination, was the odds-on favorite to win against Republican challenger Richard Nixon. Nixon, who had lost his previous bid for the presidency in 1960 to John F. Kennedy, was a longtime Hughes crony. It was well known that Hughes had even given Nixon's brother, Don Nixon, a huge loan to start a chain of fast food restaurants and that in return Nixon had used his powers as vice president to get Hughes Aerospace to be run through Hughes Medical Institute as a charity and therefore not subject to taxation, saving Hughes untold millions of dollars and clearing the way for massive black project space development. To this day, the IRS has kept all the records of its dealings with Hughes on this matter completely secret. John Meyer had met with Robert Kennedy shortly before his death, and Kennedy had told him he knew about what had happened regarding the Hughes Medical Institute and was going to expose it. The enmity between RFK and Hughes was all Mayhew needed to put his assassination plan into action. Meyer kept a diary from his Hughes days that he released in a book called Age of Secrets. The book was heavily censored with almost no coverage and was essentially buried. The crucial breakthroughs in the diary reveal the hand of the Hughes organization through Robert Mayhew in the assassination of Senator Robert Kennedy in Los Angeles at the Ambassador Hotel on June 5th. 1968. I thank you all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Senator Robert Kennedy died on June 6, 1968, at 4.44 a.m., had he not been assassinated, most political experts agree he would have easily beaten Richard Nixon and won the presidential election. Mayhew, Hughes, and the CIA couldn't afford to have a Kennedy back in the White House. The ex-technology they had been secretly cultivating with Hughes Aerospace couldn't be revealed. Ex-Protect would need to risk exposure to keep the UFO file in their hands. The outline of a complex and targeted plot to prevent Senator Robert Kennedy from becoming president is clearly laid out in John Meyer's diary. He was seeing through the players of a dangerous game. An excerpt reads, October 25th, 1969. My friends and I were taken to the president's yacht all day. We also visited the president's beach house. On the yacht, I sat stunned as Don Nixon, after many drinks, started talking about the RFK assassination, his brother being in Texas when JFK was assassinated, and Bob Mayhew telling Don about Bob's conversation with Don in Las Vegas. Mayhew took credit for the RFK murder. The ones that sat around the table with their mouths open were shocked. There was more. Thane Eugene Caesar was a security guard that had been hired only three days previously by the Ambassador Hotel. He was directly behind Senator Kennedy when he was shot that night. In the confusion of Sirhan Sirhan shooting his gun some five feet in front of Kennedy, witnesses also saw Caesar draw and fire his gun. Caesar would change his story several times about what happened that night, claiming he never fired a shot. 
but police never tested his gun. Well-known L.A. County coroner Thomas Noguchi did an autopsy on Senator Kennedy. It showed that he had been shot at point-blank range in the back of the head, about one inch from his right ear. In other words, if I press my fingers in the back, it's about uh, uh, three inches away from the senator's ear. Since Sirhan was identified by witnesses as being five feet in front of Kennedy, Noguchi's findings indicated that Sirhan was not the assassin of Robert Kennedy. Whoever it was had to be directly behind him. The person behind Kennedy was Thane Eugene Caesar. Meyer's diary excerpt. June 13th, 1968. Listening to the radio where they were discussing the RFK assassination and who was shot, etc., they mentioned Thane Caesar who was a security guard at the hotel working for ACE Guard Security and was also employed by Lockheed Aircraft. I remember Thane from his trips to Vegas where he was meeting with numerous gaming people and was introduced to me by Jack Hooper, an associate of Bob Mayhew. June 14th, 1968. Bob Mayhew called and told me to come over to his house at 8.30 p.m. that evening, and I did. He was furious and wanted to know why I was checking up on Thane. I was stunned at his anger, and he said to me that if I kept discussing this matter, he would see that I was no longer around the Hughes operation. He then told me that he was responsible for all security matters in Nevada, and he would personally handle the Paul Schrade convalescence at the ranch. June 15, 1968, 8 a.m., received a call from Jack Hooper, who told me that he was speaking with Bob Mayhew and I was never to mention his name or Bell Air Patrol. He told me Mayhew wanted to speak to me after we spoke, and I called Mayhew 15 minutes later. Bob wanted to impress upon me that he was in charge of the Nevada operations, and everything I did in Nevada involving Hughes, he was to be informed about. It's clear from these excerpts from Hughes's aide, John Meyer, that from the outset, Bob Mayhew was worried that Meyer had figured out his role in the assassination of Robert Kennedy. His inquiries about Thane Eugene Caesar led Mayhew to issue the not-so-subtle threats and final ultimatum for Meyer to cease looking into this before it was too late. Mayhew and the CIA forces behind him saw Meyer as a dangerous wildcard as they moved to consolidate the Hughes organization and conceal their crime. The actions of Exprotect to preserve the wall of secrecy around covert aerospace programs would change society forever. Since the John Frankenheimer film The Manchurian Candidate came out in the early 1960s, the clandestine idea of a mind-controlled assassin had been in the public mind, although it wouldn't be clear for another decade that the program was in fact entirely real and something the CIA on record had destroyed all of its files on concerning its existence. With his deep CIA history and black ops background, Mayhew had access to the best CIA mind-controlled programmers. The jaw-dropping detail that Mayhew operative Johnny Roselli was co-owner of the Santa Anita racetrack that employed Sirhan suggests that Mayhew had Roselli find the Patsy to be programmed for the RFK assassination. Sirhan, being introverted and highly suggestible, made an ideal candidate. 
Sirhan would disappear for months with no contact to family and friends just before his strange appearance at the Ambassador Hotel. Years later, CIA MKUltra hypno-programmer William Bryan would brag to friends that he had programmed Sirhan to be at the Ambassador and shoot that night. Sirhan's own notebooks, found after the assassination, mention the name of Albert DeSalvo, the infamous Boston Strangler, who had been coerced into a confession under hypnosis by the very same William Bryan. You have to have the person locked up physically, to have control over them, you have to use a certain amount of physical torture involved, and there is also the use of um, uh, long-term uh, hypnotic suggestion, probably drugs, whatever, and so on. Under these situations where you have all this going for you, like the prison camp and so on, yes, you can brainwash a person to do just about anything. What I'm speaking about are the innumerable instances that we ran into when I was running the country's brainwashing and anti-brainwashing programs. Sirhan claimed to have no memory after the incident and thought he was at a shooting range. With Mayhew's strongman Thane Eugene Caesar pulling off the murder and Sirhan to take the fall for the crime, the stage was set for Nixon to become president and for Hughes to have the most powerful man in the world support his efforts to make Hughes Aerospace the future of space travel and defense. In a chilling final excerpt from Meyer's diary, he tells of Mayhew meeting Nixon's brother, Don, the morning that it was announced that Senator Robert Kennedy had died. June 6, 1968, 5 a.m., Bob Mayhew called to ask about the Don-Nixon meeting and suggested 8.30 for breakfast at the Desert Inn Country Club. I went to the club. Mayhew was all smiles and Don Nixon walks in all smiles. What followed next had to be seen to be believed. They embraced each other and Don Nixon said, well, that prick is dead. And Mayhew said, well, it looks like your brother is in now. At the time, I did not even know what they were talking about. Mayhew joked that they should now be calling Don Nixon Mr. Vice President. In a final twist, Caesar, who would eventually flee to the Philippines, was found to have not only worked at Lockheed Aircraft, but in their elite skunk works division, well known in UFO research circles as the hub of exotic technology redevelopment. Ben Rich, the director of Skunk Works, known as the father of stealth, once said, we now have the technology to take E.T. home. According to those who had attended his final lecture, he also said, we had figured out how to do interstellar travel. He alluded to these technologies being wrapped up in black projects that would never be revealed. In a letter from July 1986, Rich explained that he believed in both man-made and extraterrestrial UFOs, explaining that many UFOs were just unfunded opportunities. As the head of Skunk Works, Rich was in a unique position to know. They were the very heart of UFO and X-technology development. How this 26-year-old security guard merited such a posh assignment at one of the world's most top-secret advanced development programs reflects the deep tentacles of CIA aerospace connections and their darkest secret, the lethal unit that protects the X-technology inside the UFO file, X-Protect. James Earl Ray, the assassin of civil rights leader Martin Luther King in the official version of history, 
always maintained his innocence after his lawyer had him plead guilty to avoid the death penalty. Many of the key elements used to portray Ray as the lone gunman completely fell apart in subsequent investigations, like the House Select Committee on Assassinations and the 1999 civil trial of Lloyd Jowers. In the Jowers case, the jury found that government agencies had been involved in the King assassination. How did Ray come to be used as the patsy? His extensive travels to Canada, Mexico, and the UK show the fingerprints of intelligence work. Ray maintained that after he broke out of prison in 1967 for the robbery of a grocery store, that he went to Montreal and met a shadowy figure named Raoul, who assisted in getting him work running guns and paying him thousands of dollars. According to Ray, Raoul had asked him on the day of the King assassination to book a room at the New Rebel Motel that had a great view of the Lorraine Motel where King was staying. He then told him to purchase a rifle that Raoul could show to a new armed buyer at the time of the shooting, three witnesses identified Ray over a mile away from the scene of the crime at a gas station. Ray's personal effects were intentionally left at the motel, along with the rifle that Raoul had asked Ray to buy. Raoul had been running Ray for nearly a year, gained his trust, and then the time had come to use him as the patsy for the MLK assassination. Years later, when pressed about Raoul in interviews, Ray still seemed reluctant to reveal too many details. This is the man that you knew as Raoul. Yes. And you met him where? Canada. Up in Canada. You just met in a saloon or? It was a saloon in, in a waterfront area of uh, Montreal. Mm -hmm. You never became good friends then? Uh, no, I wasn't good friends. Mm -hmm. Just business. Ray would add sometimes that Raoul also operated out of New Orleans, and they would often meet there for Raoul to give him new assignments. The late DA of New Orleans, Judge Jim Garrison, who brought the only trial in the death of President John F. Kennedy against CIA businessman Clay Shaw, got an interesting lead on Raoul, Jules Rico Campbell. In the early part of our investigation into John Kennedy's murder, one of the most interesting individuals we encountered was Jules Rico Kimball. We learned from him about the, uh, his relationship uh, as, a, you might say, spear carrier for the CIA here in New Orleans, uh, his relationship with uh, David Ferry and uh, Clay Shaw, who were considerably more than spear carriers who were involved here in New Orleans with the New Orleans and the murder of John Kennedy, and about Jules Rico Kimball's trip to to Montreal, a town where he seemed to be knowledgeable, but we weren't able to get much more than that. But in the final sum of things, spear carrier or not, uh, Jules Rico Kimball was uh, a, a small load, uh, but, but a rich one with a, a few specks of gold and most useful in giving us insights into the role of the covert intelligence operation in the murder of John Kennedy. Work for the government. CIA for quite a few years. They have paid an invasion to uh, assassination of uh, President Kennedy. Kimball explains how his intelligence work led him to Montreal. I had a contact there, and I would visit up there. At that time, uh, uh, CIA was working uh, uh, Quebec, you know, the free Canada, which was the French were trying to take over there. And I'd done uh, a couple of jobs up there for them. According to Kimball, the jobs he is referring to were two assassinations on behalf of the CIA. See, CIA bailed back anybody, as long as they can put a man on the inside. 
during this 1989 interview with a British film crew, Kimball dropped a major bombshell. He was borrowed from the CIA by the FBI, and an agent took him to meet James Earl Ray at the Atlanta airport to fly him to Canada. We had Mr. Tony take him up. Told me to pick up, go to the ladder to uh, Charlie Brown Airport, and this guy would, uh, would meet me there. And I went there and I, I stayed there, and, uh, and he asked me what my name is Kimball. I said, yes, he's a lot of passion. So, okay, well, you ready to go? What? I took him to a place on uh, Mount Royal Street, which is in, in Montreal itself. And uh, I had a contact there. It was a CIA front in the building. And uh, I got him uh, his fake identification to Kimball set Ray up with CIA contacts who gave him the identity of Eric S. Galt. Ray lived close by in Montreal to the real Eric S. Galt, a military contractor working in aerospace for Union Carbide with a high security clearance. Only a major intelligence official would have access to Galt's identity to supply it to Ray. In fact, it's now proven that Kimball was found to have been in Montreal when Ray was there. Kimball said he also flew Ray out of Montreal after the MLK assassination. According to Kimball's revelations, Ray was being moved around by covert agencies. And as we can see, Galt was clearly connected to secret aerospace activities. Garrison made the point that Kimball, in any case, had proven to be an excellent source. Every single statement that he gave us turned out to be true without exception. There was no dissembling. There was the only, the only, in retrospect, I can see from going through his whole file here, the only information that is not true uh, is what had been planted in his mind back at that time towards the end of his service for the uh, CIA here in the city, the covert operations. Uh, is where they have planted in his mind the idea that he was really working for the Ku Klux Klan or the white citizens or something like that, which is kind of a standard operating procedure for intelligence agencies before they dismiss somebody after they perform things. But in the final analysis, Kimball himself never lies. When pressed if he was the elusive Raoul in Ray's story, he agreed that he was and added, uh, they, they call me Rico. So, would you say that at least for the Canadian part of Ray's story, you were Raoul? Ah, uh, yes, I yes. Ray had been carefully put into the position of being the patsy by covert intelligence operatives. Attorney William Pepper, who represented Ray at the Lloyd Jowers trial and wrote extensively on the case, learned from Ron Adkins, the son of Mafia figure Russell Adkins Sr., that the warden of Missouri State Penitentiary was paid $25,000 to allow Ray to escape in 1967. According to Ron Adkins, the money had been delivered to his father by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's right-hand man and rumored lover, Clyde Tolson, who Ron knew as Uncle Clyde. This allowed Ray to be on the outside to become a pawn of a clandestine assassination plan connected directly to an aerospace defense contractor. Before 
Before that, April 4th, 1968, Rendezvous with Destiny, Ray had been led by Raoul to Beverly Hills. Here, he would work extensively with a master hypnotist named Xavier von Koss. He also had plastic surgery done on his nose. He started calling himself Eric Starvo Galt. Beverly Hills seemed like an odd place to be for a low-level criminal like Ray. Ray would meet with no less than eight psychologists during his time in Los Angeles and actively consult with Scientologists. He was seen during this period obsessively reading Psycho-Cybernetics by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. The book was based on a cognitive behavioral technique by psychologist Prescott Leckie and the theories of physicist John von Neumann, an early proponent of quantum mechanics, who, according to physicist Robert Sarbarker, was in charge of the highly secretive UFO file. Ray was out of place in Beverly Hills, but the reasons for him being there became clear when it was later found that he'd made a series of calls to Litton Industries, a shadowy military contractor who had their headquarters right in the heart of Beverly Hills. The president of Litton Industries, Charles Tex Thornton, had spent a decade with Hughes Aerospace. He had taken the knowledge from his years with Hughes to develop some of the first ever space suits, eventually creating a major space division. The company would become one of the first conglomerates and would often land in the headlines in connection with corruption cases. They also reveled in the unusual location of Beverly Hills, not a traditional place for a military contractor. Their eccentricities extended to their headquarters, the old MCA Hollywood building, reimagined in even more posh style, with a treasure trove of Hollywood collectibles, like Shirley Temple's shoes, the stairway from Gone with the Wind, and extensive movie memorabilia from The Wizard of Oz. When Thornton headed up Litton Industries, he made a series of purchases for the company, including Ingalls Shipbuilding, who ran major shipyards in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Ray had claimed in a job application to have worked in this shipyard, giving the name of Litton Industries and stating he was a former employee. He also told the manager of a rooming house that he was on vacation from Ingalls Shipbuilding in Pascagoula. Ingalls Shipbuilding would be in the center of a worldwide controversy when a major UFO abduction case was reported by two employees of its F.B. Walker division in Pascagoula in October 1973, when Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker would claim they were abducted by robot-like beings into a large craft. The beings would paralyze them and perform examinations using very sophisticated technology. The craft was described as 40 feet wide with blinking blue lights. Calvin Parker describes what happened. We landed behind us. We turned around, stood up, turned around, looked, and must have been the door that opened where all the bright lights come out of. They came out of the craft and they come and picked us up then and but when they got us, they grabbed us by the shoulder right there. And uh, that's when I felt the injection. And two got a hold of uh, me and one got a hold of Charlie and they took us inside. They did an examination. So when they examined us, we was probably in there. I'm going to say 45 minutes. I'm not real sure. I didn't have a watch or nothing at the time. They put us back out at the same place we were, facing the water, and I was froze. I was standing there facing the river with my arms stretched out like that. And I couldn't move them. I mean, I just took a minute just to get them freed up. And that's when I heard Charlie calling me in the back. He was down on the ground. I mean, he said he lost control of his legs. Then we turned around and faced the craft, which is sitting right about here. 
then the lights just disappeared. The bright light disappeared. It picked straight up and went up a little ways, then it just disappeared like lightning. I mean, it was gone. The beings themselves are quite unusual, even for the alien abduction phenomena. Given the hundreds of cases on record, the possibility must be entertained that this was a genuine alien encounter with a UFO. The strangeness of the Lytton Industries connection, however, casts a peculiar light on the entire incident. The spacesuits that Lytton was making at the time closely resemble the kind of stiff, robotic description of these aliens. Later, the term military abductions, or MyLabs, would come to be known as actions covert wings of military and intelligence would take to simulate an abduction scenario. A witness who saw the craft hovering would later describe a large splash taking place before the craft lifted off and left. After the splash, she looked down into the water and she saw one of the peculiar figures swim away from the scene under the water just as the light was shooting up in the air. There's no question that Hickson and Parker were greatly disturbed by the incidents. They were both highly credible and even passed lie detector tests to further substantiate their story. World-class UFO experts like J. Allen Hynek came forward to attest to the sincerity of their account. They maintained they were abducted and never changed their story for over four decades. But what really happened to them? And who was the wizard behind the curtain manipulating the strings? The presence of a notorious assassin in the same shipyard only a few years earlier raises the specter that Lytton Industries was somehow testing out the X-Technology and using a standard abduction scenario as a cover for this highly secretive operation. A little-known report from the same Pascagoula shipyard area just three weeks later follows the activities of an officer trying to track peculiar lights seen under the water further corroborating that some program was being tested at Pascagoula. It was noted by the Coast Guard that a large nuclear facility operated by Lytton Industries for the U.S. Navy was close by to both incidents. Had the aliens returned? Was it Lytton trying out X-Technology re-engineered from UFOs? Or all of the above? The Pascagoula UFO case is a web of strange connections, including the fact that Calvin Parker's father had previously worked at Area 51 for the Atomic Energy Commission. Did this make Parker a more attractive target for the abduction scenario, either by covert groups or an alien intelligence? Charles Hickson walked away from the experience with a profound sense of global awakening about off-world civilizations, and even reported continued experiences with the beings. Lytton would thrive with their flagship company, Ingalls Shipbuilding, for many years before Lytton and its technology was sold to Northrop Grumman in 2001, their years of black-budget aerospace defense contracts setting the stage for a massive space infrastructure completely kept from the public behind a wall of secrecy with the help of Exprotect. Back in 1963, a president saw the dangers that could arise from this unchecked power structure and would give his life fighting it. Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused assassin of President John F. Kennedy, was portrayed by the FBI as a radical Marxist who hated America and got a lucky chance to shoot the president when JFK's motorcade went by the window of Oswald's new job at the Texas School Book Depository. The Warren Commission, a team of political insiders put together by President Johnson, 
who assumed the presidency when JFK was assassinated, was told their job was to shut down any questions about the involvement of the CIA or any possible conspiracies. Former CIA director Alan Dulles, who had been fired by JFK, was brought in to oversee all intelligence connections to the case and suppress them. What was the government so worried about? After all, Oswald had been eliminated only two days after being accused of shooting JFK by Jack Ruby, a strip club owner linked to organized crime. During the brief time he was in custody, Oswald claimed he was innocent and was being set up as a patsy. I, uh, I don't know what this is all about. I Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Back up, man. The problem for the Warren Commission was Oswald's involvement with the CIA and the highly secretive ex-protect wing that operated in the interest of intelligence and aerospace groups to protect the exotic ex-technology in the UFO file. The first issue was, if Oswald were to be portrayed as a communist, they would need to explain his work during the summer before the assassination for the right-wing former head of the Chicago FBI office, Guy Bannister, in New Orleans. Bannister's office at 544 Camp Street was a focal point of anti-communist activity, and he was often referred to as to the right of Attila the Hun. How would a communist-leaning leftist who had lived in the Soviet Union find himself working with Bannister? When leaflets that Oswald had been handing out were discovered with Bannister's address on them, more witnesses came forward to say Oswald had worked for Bannister. A series of strange deaths followed these revelations, and these connections were kept out of official investigations. The New Orleans District Attorney, Jim Garrison, had come across these curious links when putting his case together against Clay Shaw in the JFK assassination. He knew Bannister from his FBI days and began to realize that Oswald had been set up. Lee Harvey Oswald killed no one at all. So the point is, it wasn't a question of being alone or with anybody. He had nothing to do with the assassination. Garrison believed that Bannister was the key to unraveling what was really behind the JFK assassination. Bannister's background in the FBI reveals the curious fact that he originated the X-Files, creating the name identification for UFO cases that he investigated for the Bureau. When Bannister died shortly before the Warren Commission was released in 1964, federal officials destroyed all of his files. However, a small set of file names were preserved by his wife, who eventually gave them to a local library. The file names give us an idea of what Bannister and his private detective agency front was really pursuing. One bombshell item of interest listed below the JFK assassination was Dinosaur Space Warcraft. This project, officially the Boeing X-20 Dinosaur, was originally conceived in Nazi Germany. One of the paperclip scientists brought over to create an X-series of space planes was Walter Dornberger, who was a general in the SS and Werner von Braun's superior in the Nazi rocket program. Dornberger was originally slated to face death at Nuremberg for crimes against humanity. By using inhumane methods on his slave labor population, building the V-2 rockets. After his release and move to America, Dornberger had landed the post of Vice President of Bell Helicopter in 1952. Dornberger's understudy at Bell was a promising engineer named Michael Payne, the son of the inventor of the Bell Helicopter, Arthur Young. Payne and his wife Ruth hosted Lee Harvey Oswald and his Russian wife Marina at their home in Irving, Texas. 
Most of the incriminating evidence against Oswald, including the controversial backyard photo supposedly showing Oswald holding a rifle and a pistol, along with communist literature, which photo experts have repeatedly shown were tampered with, seemed to indicate the plan for making Oswald the patsy started very early. On November 23, 1963, the day after the assassination, Irving Police Captain Paul Barger reported that a telephone repairman had overheard a male voice, presumably Michael Payne, speaking from the Payne household in a telephone call, saying he did not feel Oswald was responsible. And he further stated, quote, we both know who is responsible, unquote. Researchers later claimed the info had come from an FBI wiretap of Payne's phone, but he was never questioned about it. Dornberger was at the very core of the X-Technology program, and his greatest achievement, the X-15, still holds the record for a manned space plane set 60 years ago. The presence of Oswald at the home of Ruth and Michael Payne, with their deep connections to Dornberger, shows the tentacles of aerospace interests reaching into the major assassinations. Far from being the drifter and loser that the Warren Commission had portrayed him as, Oswald had actually been stationed at a high security position in Atsugi in Japan during the development of the secret U-2 plane. In the summer before the JFK assassination, Oswald, while working at the Riley Coffee Company, which was a CIA front, was telling his fellow employees that he was going to work for NASA which was why he was moving to Texas. When New Orleans DA Jim Garrison inquired about Oswald's fellow employees at Riley, he learned the odd fact that most of his co-workers had gone on to jobs at NASA or other aerospace companies. During the height of Garrison's investigation into Clay Shaw and the JFK assassination, he got in touch with Warren Hinkle, the publisher of Ramparts magazine, telling him it was urgent that they speak immediately. Hinkle's account follows. This is urgent, Jim Garrison said. Can you take this in the mailroom? They'd never think to tap the mailroom extension. Garrison began talking when I picked up the mailroom extension. This is risky, but I have little choice. It is imperative that I get this information to you now. Important new evidence has surfaced. Those Texas oil men do not appear to be involved in President Kennedy's murder in the way we first thought. It was the military-industrial complex that put up the money for the assassination. But as far as we can tell, the conspiracy was limited to the aerospace wing. I've got the names of three companies and their employees who were involved in setting up the president's murder. Do you have a pencil? I wrote down the names of the three defense contractors. Garrison identified them as being Lockheed, Boeing, and General Dynamics, and the names of those executives in their employ whom the district attorney said had been instrumental in the murder of Jack Kennedy. I said that I had everything down and Garrison said a hurried goodbye. It's poor security procedure to use the phone, but the situation warrants the risk. I wanted you to have this in case something happens. The investigation trail led Garrison directly to the aerospace companies developing the X-Technology and the UFO file. His arrest of Clay Shaw was a shot across the bow. It would eventually be revealed that Shaw had been a CIA asset and had a murky trail of associates, including David Ferry, a CIA pilot who had worked closely with Guy Bannister. Ferry was also an expert hypnotist. Garrison discovered that Ferry had been Oswald's squad commander in the Civil Air Patrol when Oswald was only 15. The grooming of Oswald by Ferry and intelligence services had paid off when he was selected as the patsy for the JFK assassination. Garrison was planning to bring Ferry to trial for conspiracy. Instead, Ferry died mysteriously and left behind type suicide notes. Garrison's case against Clay Shaw collapsed. The CIA had worked overtime behind the scenes to undermine it. 
According to Victor Marchetti, an assistant to CIA director Richard Helms, the media would also be used to demonize Garrison's efforts at revealing the truth. When Garrison's Shaw trial was over in 1969, a mysterious document appeared leaked by an unknown insider who called himself William Torbett. The document revealed a previously unknown government division called Defense Industrial Security Command, or DISC, which was described as a NASA security division headed by former Nazi rocket scientist Werner von Braun. The Torbett document identified the following individuals as DISC agents. Guy Bannister, Clay Shaw, David Ferry, Lee Harvey Oswald, and Lewis Mortimer Bloomfield. Bloomfield had headed up Permindex, a CIA front world trade company that specialized in assassinations and was based in Montreal. The earliest blueprint for a group linked directly to Exprotect had been revealed in the mysterious Torbett document. President Kennedy's desire to open the UFO file and share it with the Russian government for purposes of a joint moon mission, as demonstrated in National Security Action Memorandum 271 and his November 12th memo to the director of the CIA. Kennedy had struggled his entire presidency with the out-of-control intelligence community to reassert presidential power over their unconstitutional actions. He mused to aides in private that he was going to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the wind. A major piece of this effort was reasserting control over the UFO file that had been lost at the end of the Eisenhower administration. E. Howard Hunt, the CIA super spy, best known as the coordinator of the Watergate burglars, revealed to his close friend and attorney for the Watergate 7, Douglas Caddy, the nature of the desperate struggle between JFK and the CIA over the UFO file. Caddy revealed to me what Hunt told him in this interview. And then we walked out, and on the street there, I thought, well, this is, this is the last time I see Howard. I'm going to make one more stab, okay, and, and seeing if I can get something here, you know. And I said, well, Howard, uh, well, why was uh, John Kennedy assassinated? He said, uh, what, why was John Kennedy assassinated? He said, John Kennedy was assassinated because he was about to give our most vital secret to the Soviets about to give our most vital secret to the Soviets. And I was stunned by that. I mean, John Kennedy, our president, Soviets, and I never even thought about, heard about such a thing. And uh, and I said, well, what, what was that? And uh, at that point, he leaned forward and looked right in my eyes, directed in my eyes, and he said, the alien presence. And he reached out and shook my hand and then turned and walked away. And that was the last time I saw Howard Hunt. It didn't mean that much to me. I knew it was important, but it did not mean that much. There's no way I could, and the alien presence, I was not really familiar with that either, you know. Uh, but I remembered it. I knew it was important. This breakthrough revelation from a top CIA officer to his friend in private gives us the real mandate of Exprotect. Any official, even the president, who wants to reveal the true nature of the X technology in the UFO file must be eliminated. They've used this protocol for decades, but their attempts to conceal their actions have at times taken an unexpected turn. George Joannetti's had been a pivotal figure in CIA psychological warfare operations during his long career. His work was so secret that it's an accident of history that we even know his name. Journalist Jefferson Morley uncovered it when looking at an intelligence front group called the DRE back in the Kennedy era when Joannetti's created the Oswald Project the ultimate psychological warfare operation. 
When the House Select Committee on Assassinations convened in the late 70s, the CIA, at risk of exposure, turned to their best psychological warfare officer, Joe Anides, to keep their role in the assassination hidden. For his efforts, Joe Anides was awarded the Career Achievement Medal. His records have never been released. The CIA has spent millions in legal fees concealing his past. The man who gave Joe Anides his medal may give us a clue to the role he played in relation to X-Protect. Bobby Ray Inman, then the Deputy CIA Director, had a career that was just as mysterious as Joe Anetti's was. He was one of the few government officials who discussed UFOs openly. He went on record saying that recovered vehicles or alien craft were in the possession of the government. He even claimed to have some expertise in the area of UFOs after he retired. He said he was aware of a program to indoctrinate the public about UFOs and was quoted as saying the following that he, quote, understood who was behind the technology in the crafts, unquote. These are major statements by someone who served in such positions as NSA director and deputy director of the CIA. Inman would eventually wind up on the board of XE, a mercenary outfit used in covert warfare. When we look at Joannides and Inman, we can see the impact of X-Protect on our policies that lead us right up to the present with battles over the UFO file continuing and spilling over into private enterprise. The ex-steganography of SpaceX and Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin show that these groups are ready to unleash what has been in development since Hughes Aerospace started down the road of immense secrecy. The Trump administration creation of the Space Force as the sixth branch of the armed services is also an attempt to pull the ex-technology back under presidential control. X-Protect has thrived in secrecy and have utilized the X-Technology in the UFO file at the public's expense for decades. The world at large has not had access to the UFO information that's been withheld by a vast power structure sitting in the strange partnership between the CIA on one side and the aerospace defense contractors on the other. It is in fact a covert government that has usurped the public overt government and put in place the perfect storm of a global control grid that's being built with no oversight but lots of unlimited dollars thanks to the missing trillions at the Pentagon, HUD, and NASA. X-Protect has been there every step of the way and now we hear from the same partnership between the CIA and the aerospace defense companies that UFOs are a threat and must be added to an already bloated defense budget. And the New York Times runs stories with CIA officials claiming they will give the public UFO disclosure. That soft disclosure means that X-Protect is in a position to roll out the X-Technology, which means the world is a more dangerous place than ever before. As we remember those who have fallen while fighting X-Protect, we must remember we can move our culture forward by destroying the wall of secrecy erected by these covert organizations. The only way we can do it is to expose X-Protect and the lethal means that they've used to control every aspect of society. In the final analysis, if we are to understand the power structure on planet Earth, we must understand X-Protect and hold them accountable for their actions. The whole world is watching and waiting. I'm Dark Journalist. Thank you for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you soon.